Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter or X at political underscore beats. You can also find the show on Facebook as well. And subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts for now. Tune in. Find them at nationalreview.com. You can listen and leave reviews where possible, help others find the show. And we also direct you to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash political beats. Support us there. Help the show stay ad free as it is. Entry level there for support of the program and some voting privileges and a few other things here and there. Mid-level for early access to all of our programs and get them at a higher audio quality. And our upper level bestest friends, early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered shows, playlists, and much more. All of that at patreon.com slash political beats. Now the part of the program where we thank some of our Patreon supporters individually and specifically, our new supporters, new people all the time, John Rosenblatt, James Tucker, Philip Callison, and Captain America. Very appropriate for this Kinks Part 2 episode, as you'll hear in a bit. We also thank some of our longtime supporters like Brian Roach, Susan B., C.J. Box, Charles Evans, Cliff Keller, Roy Gilbert, Mark Newman, Pete Lacombe, and I'm going to give this a try, Jackie Tailbaldi. If I mispronounce that, I apologize. Thank you all for being a part of what we do here at Political Beats, more at patreon.com slash political beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on X, formerly Twitter, at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I'm just sitting back here in my old rocking chair in my Shangri-La, Scott. I need not worry. I need not care. I have nothing to say. You'll have lots to say. I'm certain of that as we work through this second part of our Kinks episode. And the same guest from our first half is back for our second half, which is actually the third time doing it. But you know what I mean. Jay Cost is back. Uh, Gerald R. Ford, senior non-residential fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. You can also find his books at Amazon and elsewhere. James Madison, America's first politician and the latest one, Democracy or Republic. He's on X, formerly Twitter, at J underscore underscore cost. Jay, thanks for coming back. Scott, thanks for having me. Jeff, thanks for having me. Love, love political beats. Love to talk about the kinks. So great to be here. Wonderful. For those not with us in part one, yes, we, we did the kinks a long time ago and now we're doing it again. It's the kinks. Do it again. Part two. Part one brought us from the early days of the Kinks all the way through an album called Village Green Preservation Society. Really only a scant, what, four years, five years? We only have the rest of their career to cover in two hours or so on this part two, but I'm confident we can do it. And Jeff, this is the part of the program, especially the back half or so, that was slighted the most during our initial coverage. So I'm happy to have another opportunity and another swing to do justice to this part of the Kinks career.
this part of this show is, in fact, why I really, really wanted to redo these episodes. We simply failed to do any kind of justice to the music after Muswell Hillbillies, and it was in part because of time constraints, but I'm going to also be really honest with you guys because you're hearing me saying this a lot throughout the show. A lot of it was out of ignorance, too. I simply wasn't nearly as familiar with, with the stuff from, you know, here onwards. Well, I mean, the first few albums, everyone knows. But beyond that, I had just literally written it off. I had not had the time to fully internalize it by the time we taped that show. And I just would have done a completely different take on it, uh, knowing what I know now. And now I'm able to do it. So I guess so. Uh, what do you want to do? Shall we start the story off where we left it off, Scott? That's normally what we do. Yes. Let's start uh, just after Village Green as uh, an album that is universally beloved now, but didn't sell all that wonderfully anywhere. Oh, it did. It's so worse than all that wonderfully. It didn't chart. OK, <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is the whole point of where the King's career is at in, at the end of 1968, at the beginning of 69. They put out this album that's basically, you know, critically hailed universally as a masterpiece. It's actually noticed, even at the time, which is worth pointing out how good it was. Didn't sell anything. The singles flopped. There was, it was literally, you know, nobody was interested in buying it. So what was Ray Davis's idea? What were they going to do? This is obviously a band that was, you know, on its downslope commercially, unless something could be done to change it. He managed to find himself through his connections that he'd already been working with the BBC, the ability to score a radio broadcast or a television show. And I'm not even sure which one it was, but that's originally where the concept of what would become Arthur or the decline and fall of the British Empire from early 1969. Their next album came from. It came from Ray Davis's idea of working to do a soundtrack for a show. Earlier in that year, later in 68, he'd already been doing this challenge where he was supposed to write like a song a week based on a headline that would be given to him. And that's where a bunch of these outtakes, like did you see his name and where did my spring go and when I turn out the living room light, that's where those songs all come from. They don't feel like quite like they belong to any album. Well, they don't. They don't because Ray Davis is writing like a song grabbed from the headlines once a week. Gave him the ability to write fast. Gave him the ability to write narratively. He wanted to be ambitious. And so he comes up with this story. The story of Arthur. Who is Arthur? Arthur's a real person. Or at least he's based on a real person. Arthur is, of course, every man. He's the British working man who literally, you know, is born and lives and dies in the class structure of Britain unless he decides he wants something better for his life and what's one of the opportunities available. Well, why don't we go and make a new life for ourselves in Australia? 
which is what Arthur does. And he goes through all of his paces and he achieves a certain kind of comfort. And what does he get at the end of it? Well, well, that's a, that's a different kind of a question that's answered by a couple of songs on the album. It's a very interesting idea. It's a very beautiful idea and very poetic idea. Everybody else on the planet considers Arthur to be one of the kinks masterpieces equivalent with village green and something else and face to face, except me. But I, before we talk about this record, I want to know what you guys think of, I actually think what is a really appropriate place for us to begin for part two, because it's the first of Ray Davis's grand televisual theatrical ideas. What do you guys think of Arthur? actually tend to agree with you jeff i think mm. that of the of the classic five star inks records this one has always been my least favorite i think it is the least interesting and catchy musically i also really think that the story is just a relentless downer and and some of the songs are catchy in some ways, but in a way that is just depressing, like Some Other Son is just really depressing. Yes or No, Sir is really depressing. When you listen to the lyrics of Victoria, it's really depressing. Um, and I, I don't think that the record has a pop to it like his other records do. And I, I, I'm with you. I, it's a minority opinion. I know my buddy Dan, who loves the kinks even more than I did. He actually named both of his dogs. He has a, one dog named Artie and one dog named Tori. He named both of his dogs after after this record. He loves this record. But it's just I, I think actually since we did the first um, go through of the kinks all those years ago, I actually think I've come to really like it less. Hmm. I don't God. I don't think it's as good as Village Green, and I probably don't think it's as good of at least one other album that we're about to talk about. But I like it heck of a lot more than you two, I think. Um, I, I think it's better than something else. I think it's probably better than Muswell Hillbillies. Uh, I think there are good songs here. I, you know, we just have a difference of opinion here, which happens sometimes on the show. I like these songs. Something that I might steal from, from Jeff in a minute, I think it was in an email chain. Um, that we that we had about the the album is uh, he he doesn't like I don't uh, I don't think you like yes sir no sir or nothing to say and if you don't like those songs I totally understand you not liking the album uh, but I think they're good I, I I like yes sir no sir that that marching beat uh, that yes sir no sir begins with and runs through the the entirety of uh, of the song. Yes, Yes, sir, no, sir. Three bags for me, sir. What do I do, sir? What do I 
bugs me about is the way he sings it okay well, i think there's some sort of ray davis's voices he adopts for this album like he's supposed to be a lower class guy yes sir no sir where do i go sir and right oh gosh it just gets right on my nose well <laughs> he, totally. uses, he uses that on victoria he uses that on yes sir no sir and the reason i, I group those two songs together and i imagine you do too is because that voice comes back in nothing to say late in the album and Jay's right too. These aren't sunny songs. This, this isn't this isn't some of the more upbeat uh, sort of lazing on a Sunday afternoon that we had some years ago. These were songs about war. These are songs about loss. I mean, yes, sir. No, sir. Give the scum a gun. Make the bugger fight and be sure to have deserter shot on sight. If he dies, we'll send a medal to his wife. Nothing to say is a song about the complete alienation of family because you simply have fewer things to talk about. You have fewer common interests as years go by. That's a sad song that's kind of set to an upbeat little ditty with, with good horns. There's more horns on Arthur. I like the way they're used in places. But nothing to say is, is a, I mean, he uses the same voice because it's a follow-up from the early part of the, of the album. But it's a sad, sad song. There's no doubt about it. But I, I, I like it. I like that. I like Yes Sir, No Sir. Victoria is one of their best songs from this era it's a fantastic song that's actually one of my entry points to this album and this era is also from that I mean, kids tribute album from a few yeah. years ago uh, and cracker ended up doing a really smart cover of victoria which is how i was introduced to this arthur album to begin with song that's most covered by like you know later bands is actually victoria the fall did a great cover of victoria made a hit single out of it sonic youth of all groups did a cover of victoria <laughs> victoria for whatever reason is the one that all the cool bands like to come back to <laughs> uh yeah you know i don't i don't know i guess something another thing that kind of bothers me and i'm not sure that it's intended by ray if i had to bet it probably isn't intended but they're in his previous entries uh, i i feel like there's um a sympathy with the working class characters in his in his stories and i think you especially see that in muswell hillbillies especially at the end this sort of defiance of of the working class against the homogenization of the modern bureaucracy and it's i just kind of feel like this album is a little bit 
condescending towards Arthur hmm. and also like the song, nothing to say. It feels a little condescending. Shangri-La feels a little condescending and, I, and maybe it's just sort of a, a me thing. I don't know, but it, it Ray always seemed to be able to walk a, a careful line and generally still does despite this album of making a social point without, I want to say punching down. Maybe this feels a little punching down to me for him. I don't hey, know. You know what? That's good. It's a good. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? Scott? There's at least a couple places here, Jay, where I guess I would disagree because, and this is a theme that runs through at least a few albums here, but there are a number of places on Arthur where in, in talking about the, the middle class and talking about those, those aspirations and dreams that those people have that Ray says uh, in, in, in so many words, it's not your fault that you're not succeeding, right? right? It's, it's the aristocrats. It's, it's the bureaucrats. They're dirty rats, as they say on brainwashed for making you what you are um, on Shangri-La. Patronizing, you know? yeah, uh, on Shangri-La, um, the guy has hopes and dreams. He was overtaken by people who make big decisions. Uh, again, people from outside, uh, you know, your immediate circle who are having an effect on your life and the way you live. So I think there's there's a little bit of that here. I mean, listen, I, th I think one of the things, though, I, I agree with Jay about is that he's condescending about some of the aspirations that Arthur has or these people that he represents. So I can't believe we're really just either dissecting this, but it's worth it because he actually did. He's trying really hard here. But on something like Shangri-La, he's talking to a generation of people who grew up without electricity or indoor plumbing, uh, some of them, okay, or came from like the rural areas where they did not have, you know, the kinds of like, you know, urban conveniences and modern conveniences that we simply take for granted. So when he's talking about how like, you know, all these houses on the street, they look the same and you've got a nice garden and a nice cozy television set. Hey, you know what? That's not that bad. OK, given the where most people started to where that is, that's a reasonable aspiration <laughs> and something he dismisses a little bit too easily and callously. Now, I want to be clear. I can't believe we spent this whole time talking about this album on negative terms, which surprises me. I thought I'd be alone and out on an island about it. But its best moments are truly some of the most major work the Kings have ever done. We already mentioned Victoria, but man, when it kicks into that chorus, that's a mm -hmm. riot. That's the Kings as an actual rock band again. And I'll also point out, this is the first time you hear uh, something that's going to become a major feature of this band for several years rolling, which are horns. Mm -hmm. Horns are going to come into the feature in the Kings sound in a major way, and it's on Victoria that you first hear them tooting away very quietly in the background. I think Brainwashed is a pretty great song. Australia is a good song that does not need to have, like, 
with three minutes of instrumental That's jamming true. about the what the the mystery and alienation that traveling to Australia represents. I suppose it's meant to sort of symbolize the dislocation of traveling to the uh, the hinterlands <laughs> of the world. Right. Shangri-La, whether we go after the lyrical content or not, I mean, musically, that thing is just, you know, one of Ray's most surprising achievements. I just wish it were pr produced better. And I really got to say a word in favor of the final track, the title yeah. track, Arthur itself, yep. where like, I, don't, I don't actually hear condescension here. I hear, I hear Ray trying as, as honestly and as sincerely as he can. To, to say to anybody who's listening, no, we're not we're not making fun of this guy. We're rooting for this guy. They said he's like, Arthur, we love you and we want to help you. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? We know and we sympathize. And he says, you know, Arthur, it could be the world was wrong. You know, don't yeah. you know it? It wasn't it, it wasn't you that was wrong. It was the world that was wrong after all. You know, and that's what I love about the song. It has got a very generous spirit. Again, for, you know, coming from a rock group in 1969, it's rather uh, it's it's different. This is the other thing we take it for granted now because we've already had our Village Green experience with the Kings. We take it granted that, well, of course, they're going to be writing about these topics. They were still the only band in the world that was doing this <laughs> in 1969 and frankly ever. So like before I'm too harsh on this, I, I will say that, yeah, those are some wonderful songs. But yeah, I, I find myself also noticing that the stuff on, on, on Arthur that I don't like is going to be the stuff that I find becoming really obnoxious throughout the rest of the Kings career throughout the 70s the stuff that really sticks up my nose you know the, the theatrical the music holly stuff the a melodic stuff the stuff that feels like it's like there for narrative purposes mm -hmm. all that stuff it first starts rearing its head to my opinion on this album and in fact by the way one thing I do want to point out is that this is an album where I think it would have been immeasurably strengthened if you could have only included Dave Davis's songs. Dave Davis doesn't have a single song on this album. Why? Well, because it's a concept album. It has to be conceptually unified. He was writing better B-sides for the band than like half the things that got onto this record. This Man He Weeps Tonight is just a classic great rock song on a B-side. I think it's the B-side of like Drive-In or something like that. I can't even tell you what it is for sure. Oh, this man, he weeps tonight And he's headed for the sorrow But what could you do, Sarah? Are you learning for tomorrow? Yes, you're learning for tomorrow Yes, you're learning for tomorrow But the one that really just destroys me every single time is, is a, a forgotten song called Mindless Child of Motherhood. They have to mention because it's actually uh, painfully autobiographical. This mm -hmm. is about Dave Davis finding out that he fathered a child with like a local girl in London and like their neighborhood. And like but 15, that it was 15 covered years up. old, right? 
Yeah. Very young. Like when he was a kid and, yeah. and it was concealed from him. The girl was taken away. The child was given up for adoption. He never knew that he'd had a son. He never knew its name. He was never even allowed to find out that the affair had happened until years and years later when he was just like told, oh, by the way, you know, you know, you you got so-and-so pregnant. She gave the kid away. And he was devastated. He was like, what do you mean? I have a child I've never met and I'm never going to be able to meet. And that's where that song comes from. And it's one of the kinks strongest and most furious rock and roll performances of the entire 60s. There's, again, the only reason it's a B-side and not one of the Kinks' most famous album tracks is because it didn't fit with Ray's theme. Oi, these are my critics. Yeah, I just got to add to that, too. You know, Dave is producing an incredible, uh, not a quantity of songs around late 60s, early 70s, but just incredible quality. Like if you, if you look at what he's done since something else up through here, um, I think that for a while there was going to be like, a, a, he has an album's worth of material um, that they could have been released. I think it was, you know, basically was going to be a solo album. Um, just really like solid quality. And, you know, the, the other thing I noticed, I would note as well is Dave coming in on the, um, on the co-lead vocal on Arthur really gives that song a kick. And I think what, what we're going to see here a lot as we move into this seventies period of the kinks um, is, is Dave's going to be much more prominent, which I think is for the better. By the way, yeah, that's by the way, one of the, the secret thing I realized when listening to the albums and that I was preparing for this episode, Dave Davis is actually the best vocalist in the kinks. He's got a ton of character with his voice on a formal level. If you like the way Ray sings, because it has a lot of character, it's you know, it kind of has that querulous tone to it. It's unique, right? But Dave Davis, from this period onwards, you know, in the 60s earlier on, he had a much more ragged and squawky tone to his voice. He hadn't figured out how to use it, but he's going to actually find some really uh, surprisingly emotionally powerful gears coming up. And in fact, he's going to find it very soon. He's going to find it on the Kinks' next album. Does anybody want to set up first? By the, by the way, so we're going to have how many of the longest album titles in the world? We had something else <laughs> by the Kinks. I think that's okay. Then we had the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. Well, that's a mouthful. That one's not going to be coming out of DJ's voices during uh, you know album bumper breaks. Then we had Arthur or the decline and fall of the British Empire. And now we have Lola versus Power Man and the Money Girl Round Part 1. Uh, this was one of those mini kinks trends that I'm glad kind of came to an end with this one. <laughs> 
future He took half the money That was earned in some far distant land Gave back half to Larry And I end up with half of the Lizzo's watch Can't somebody explain Why things go on this way I thought they were my friends I can't believe it's me I can't believe that I'm so green Eyes down, round and round Let's all sit and watch the money go This is the Lola album. This is the album you know because it actually represents their commercial comeback. This is the one that finally had that big hit single that returned them to relevance in the United States and Britain alike. It revivified their career. It actually very much changed their focus from being a British band to an American band in terms of the way they toured and the play where they made their money in a lot of ways. And this album, when I first picked it up, was always sold to me as a disappointment. People's like, oh, that's one of the Kinks' weaker albums. It has the single, but don't be deceived. It's not that good. To this day, from the moment I bought it back then all the way to this day, I don't know what critics of this album are smoking. I consider it to be one of the greatest Kinks albums of all time. It is one where Dave, in particular, just supplies so many great songs to supplement Ray's already great songs. People say like, oh, we don't like what the theme is. Ray's just bitching about the music industry. Well, if I had just put out like three or four of the greatest albums of all time and sold no copies, I'd feel very sour about the music industry myself. So I really don't mind it. And I love the idea that within the concept of this album, which again, doesn't have a story. It's more of a mood about how awful the music industry is. But they're like, there is an internal joke, which is like for this struggling band or artist, if they're desperate to find a hit single, what's the hit single that they come up with? Well, it's Lola. That serves the function of the hit single in this narrative. And apparently all it took for Ray Davies to actually write a massive hit single was to find a concept album he could shoehorn it into. And that's what's so funny about Lola. I love Lola. I think it's a great record. I totally agree um, that it's been under undervalued. Um, Race. I, a few thoughts about the subject matter. The first one is that yes, okay. So Race bitching about losing money. Um, a couple thoughts on that. For starters, you know the music business. All of these rock rock guys end up 
making insane amounts of money as the 70s roll into the 80s, and particularly as the nostalgia bit kind of kicks in later on. You know, like like The Who is a good example of that. The Who ends up making an insane amount of money because, you know, by the mid 70s, they're in they're they're doing arenas. And then in the 80s, they're you know, now they can charge a thousand dollars for a floor seat ticket. and They're making an insane amount of money. stones are the same way. Right. They're all like that. But the reality is, is that nobody knew that that was how things were going to go in, say, like 1968. Right. All of these guys were basically like these working class kids for the most part, like Mick Jagger would be an exception. But for the most part, they're working class kids who get screwed by the music business. I mean, the list goes on and on. The small faces got screwed. If you read Kenny Jones's um, autobiography, screwed by the music business. The Rolling Stones got screwed by the music business. The Beatles got screwed. The Who got screwed over by Shel Tammy. Shel Tammy collected um, money off of Tommy um, as part of like the content. Like they all got screwed. And so the idea that like this is not a legitimate thing for somebody in the middle of it. I mean, look, especially like you look where Ray is in 1969 when he's writing, he's putting this out. He's got a wife. He's got, I think he has kids, right? The band is kind of on the decline. He's made all these hit songs, but he hasn't really seen any money from it. You know, a lot of bands were in that position. So I think this is a perfectly reasonable thing for him to be bitching about, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I, I think we should probably not like read back into like the soup, like these rock stars had opulent lives, but they didn't really have a lot of money back then, not like they do today. So I think it's a perfectly legitimate um, topic. I also think Reminds a lot more if he hadn't written a bunch of incredible songs to go with it. Exactly. Right? That's the if other thing. Give, if he had given me a puddle of dirges, I wouldn't yeah. care. But he gave me right. a get back in line on a long way from home and this time and tomorrow. I don't songs too like top of the pops is is, a, is an it's it's funny like mm-hmm. he's picking so is the money go around yeah, that. yeah it's yeah. they're they're funny funny songs um and so that kind of sells it and then on top of that you still have you have lola on top of all of that you have strangers which is a great dave song you have eight man which is an incredible song you have this time tomorrow there these are incre- these are incredible songs it's just overall a 10 out of 10 album for my money I love it too. We are unanimous. I I remember liking Lola the first time I heard the whole thing. I, for a long time, thought of it as just as having that song. It's the title of the album. It's the hit song. 
and then you hear what's on this record and and sort of to, to buttress Jay's point, look, this could have become something like one of the you know mid seventies dramatic soap opera type albums about the music business if the songs weren't so damn good and they but they are and and so I think Jeff sort of mentioned this it's not a concept as much as it is a, a themed album, and that sort of that that goes down a lot more smoothly than perhaps a concept album would about the cruelty of the music business but again and the in songs fact, by the way you can trade is a King's concept album successful or not? And it is, it, it goes down to whether he tries to jam a narrative into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Leave it themed, Ray. Leave it themed. <laughs> <laughs> The only, uh, it's not even a narrative, like you said, it's a, it's a theme. The only themes that run through here are, are ones that echo a lot of what he's been writing on before. Yes, you have the music business stuff, and some of it is absolutely hilarious in listening. Like, in, uh, you know, the money go round when he says, do they all deserve money for a song they've never heard? All these people who have publishing rights that are, are, are pulling money off of a song they had nothing to do with whatsoever. Um but the, the you know the themes here one of them and i think one of the reasons i was talking with jay or you know not a argument of course but um about the the arthur themes and his his sympathy toward the middle class is because i think that comes back here there's the idea that life like the music business can be completely capricious who knows what will be successful nobody knows what will be successful necessarily but we can control, and and this will sort of lead into other songs in the future too. We, we can control kind of our happiness and what we do in our private lives and what we do in our in, in, in the, with the people we have very close relations with. Our success, whether a song hits number one, like on top of the pops, and then you make real money, but then everyone wants your real money. That's where the money go round comes in. That is that is really capricious, um, and, and and other people can control it. Get back in line is a great track here, but I think even get back in line has this sort of theme to it, where he talks about the um, the union man's got such a hold on me. He's the man who decides if I live or die, if I starve or I eat. That he walks up to me, the sun shines. Going to get a job. It's going to be great. And he walks right I'm past get me. Picked today by Cardo right. called. Yeah, but he walks right past it. I know I've got to get back in line. Someone else has more say than you do about what your level of success and and wealth and all of that um, is, I think, one of the themes that runs through Lola all over the place. Stop or I eat. Then he walks up to me. 
Yeah, and just add to um, yeah. th- this is an album where they have returned in places to a bit more of a rock and roll edge, which mm-hmm. they had walked away from over their last couple of albums. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that this is this. I don't think it's a coincidence that when Ray sets out to write a really good rock and roll song like Roll Lola, he gets into the charts. I mean, it's no coincidence at all. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned Lola because we'd be remiss if we passed from this album without discussing it. Uh, it. It's like a song that you could just take for granted because it's so simple. It's, again, one of those sort of like I just learned guitar classics where you just try to work out the down, 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 down. And anybody can start playing it, but you could not have written it. All right. Because if you could have written it, you'd have written one of the most instantly memorable melodies of the 1970s. <laughs> Some people sometimes treat this as a novelty song because, you know, it's about like, I guess it's about a drag queen, right? You know, Ray goes to a bar. Like, interpret it as you will but it's all it's about some sort of bizarre tryst that took that took place at a nightclub uh and i don't know but i i'm a i it was i know what i am and i'm glad i'm a man and so's lola so you can interpret that that <laughs> little zen koan of a lyric as you will <laughs> which is the band sounds like a band. This is the first record I can remember when I listened to it by the Kinks where I listened to them and said, wait, these sound good. The band sounds like it's an actual authentic modern band. Prior to this, you know, you listen to their records and they sounded like they were wrapped in gauze, terrible production, 60s kind of sound. It all sounded very kind of quaint and beautiful and well-written, but not very you know immediate. Lola sounds like a 70s album, and it sounds really good. You hear something like Get Back in Line, the way Dave is playing his um, you know guitar lines around it, and the way Dave is singing in particular really stands out on this album. This is what I meant when I was about to say that like, Dave Davis has now become the best and most important singer in the Kinks, because you know what makes Lola, that what makes it a truly classic song isn't Ray, it's Dave's backing voice on those choruses mm-hmm. where he's like, you know, like, I pushed her away, I fell down on my knees. It's Dave who's taking the high line on that singing chorus. You know, well, I left home just a week before, and I've never ever kissed a girl before like that sort of like horse almost sort of like i think of like a it sounds like the high school quarterback being forced (laughs) into the booth to sing and it works so well he comes off they both have this sort of honestness in their voices when they sing that's impossible to fake it is just so unique it's sui generis to the kinks i love the way dave davis is going to sing throughout the rest of the 70s and you really first hear it coming to the fore on this with his three songs and with the stuff he contributes to raise Oh, 
I got to talk about two songs which I love dearly, and one of the great things about the Wes Lola, Anderson songs is that are you going to mention the Wes Anderson ones? I or think not? one of the one of the two, maybe. Uh, I think he used one of these in a, in a. It's not the main one. I think you're thinking of. It's the two at the end of the record. So one of the great things about Lola is when you do get to the end, it gets even better. Eight Man mm -hmm. and Power Man. Those two mm -hmm. songs knock me on my ass every time you get to the end of Lola. Eight Man, this wonderful sort of like Calypso style song about just being sick and tired and fed up with the modern world and the desire to sail away to a distant shore and leave the city for a jungle. And I love that stanza at verse, I'll be your Tarzan, you'll be my Jane, I'll keep you warm, you'll keep me sane, and we'll sit in the trees and eat bananas all day, because that is better than living in this world uh, with everyone else in the cities anymore. Um, and I think one of the messages here that he gets across and does in other places, too, is that we are able to uh, think more clearly and, and be more certain about ourselves the stranger the times get the, the more chaos, uh, the, the more trouble around us, the more we're able to focus on things that make us happy, the more we're able to focus on things that really make us fulfilled in life. Goodness gracious. It's one of my favorite rockers. The That's Kinks Dave's best have, on the record, in my opinion. Yeah. Ever done. I love that chug and rumble boogie through the whole thing, the way that massive riff opened things up. And that theme still holds here. He's got my money and my publishing rights, but I've got my girl and I'm all right. Uh, that sort of tossed off uh, style of the verses leading to the chorus. It's just a wonderfully constructed song. And my favorite It's also moments. got that Eastern Raga thing, which he really, you know, he started oh, sure. using yeah, yeah. as far back as See My Friends. And it kind of disappeared. It was in fancy. You heard a little bit of it there, but just went away and now it's back and it, and it somehow he managed to turn it into heavy metal that's mm -hmm. like a authentically hard rock song from yeah. the kinks and it works because of the because of the you know the theme
Jay, before we move on, do you, do you have anything you want to say about Lola? And or do we want to talk briefly about this this weird little project that that came right after it? And I guess I think we can all agree is the first in a long series of ways in which the kinks and Ray Davis in particular somehow managed to squander their momentum. It's called Percy. But before we get there, do you have anything left to say about Lola? I mean, I just, it, I, it's a great song, um, you know, and it's just interesting. Bef- this is what, like, um, four years bet- before Lou, Lou Reed got success, sort of glamorizing the sexually transgressive underground. Here's Ray Davis doing doing it. I, I, it's just great. It's a great, great song, great album. Um, and to your and to your point, I mean, Ray's got this perverse intuition about how to step on his own tail, which is exactly what he does next. So I'll, I'll, on that note, I'll let you I'll let you introduce Percy. Well, I would talk about transgressive themes. Here's a song about here's an album of fact, a movie, I believe it's a movie soundtrack album about a man with a. A penis transplant, folks. Yes, yes. <laughs> Apparently, poor Percy or whatever the main character of this film, which I've never seen, obviously, because it's obvious garbage, is hit by a nude man falling out of a window. And his, believe it or not, his flog is mutilated in this tragic accident, and he needs to have it surgically replaced. So what does Ray Davis do when he's asked for reasons I know not? Having not read the biography, I got no idea who they thought this this would be a good idea for Ray to write about, but they gave it they gave it to him, and he came up with this actually rather majestic little song that I do have to take note of called "God's Children." <laughs> so this is this is this is talk about prescient in some ways. It's a it's a, a themed film about body modification. Oh, about you're getting you know a new set of sexual organs, and then Ray Davis actually writes this song about how like no, we shouldn't alter our bodies for we are all God's children. So like. I want to be like the way the good Lord made me. And he sings in this very weird, naive voice. It's a beautiful song, but it's almost impossible to not take note of quite simply because in ways that were completely unanticipated by its creator, it has come to mean an entirely different set of propositions in 2023 than it did <laughs> back in 1970 or 71. We are the same. There's not even a lot to talk about in this film. I think the thing that's mo- I mean, unless you guys have strong opinions about any of the songs no, here, no. I think what matters more is the way that this sort of represents the dissipating their sort of creative momentum. This is probably after you finally revived your fortunes, big hit, you're touring again. Oh, we didn't even mention this, folks. Do you know what else happened in 1969, largely because the music press got behind the kinks and supported them after Arthur, is they finally had that touring ban in the United States lifted and it was actually important for us to not skip this because it means everything to the band's future career it's going to start showing up really soon in their music in their studio albums no less 
Um, but you need to know that now they're back on the road. They're back touring again in America. And apparently also they haven't changed their ways. They're still touring insanely drunkenly, uh, you know, shambolic live performances, the likes of which we could only wish were set to tape, but we're just going to have to read about the accounts now, 40, 50 years later. Um, but anyways, you know, this is, you know, what they're doing instead of coming up with a big hit follow up. Do you guys have any thoughts on this or do you want to go up to what you know, go on next to their I guess their official follow up to Lola? Well, I guess I would just say that in terms of the kinks touring, um, they are going to between when they come back to America in 69 uh, just their relentless commitment to the American road is going to build them an audience, build them back an audience. It's really not going to pay off for almost a decade. Um, the other thing I would add is that, and I believe it was on the strength of Lola that they got a new record contract that the next album we're going to talk about Muswell Hillbillies was um, done by RCA and it is I think a testament to the fact that Ray would follow up that single on the first record on his new label with an album like Muswell Hillbillies, which is brilliant, but as uncommercial as they come. Why don't we just keep going with it, Jay? Because this is what fascinates me about this record. Moseville Hillbillies, for those who aren't aware, is, is, is a record that's considered by, I'd say, the great majority of serious Kings fans. It's sort of the last record of a golden era. You know, part of that great run that begins with Face to Face. And, and this is considered to be its terminus. I consider it to be a really wonderful record. But it's a very weird record and a very kind of almost unapologetically eccentric record, almost in your face about its lack of any kind of commercial hit or hook anywhere. What the heck was Ray thinking? And tell me why you think it really succeeds. Oh, 
I think it succeeds for one of the reasons you suggested, Jeff, that their concepts, albums, when they succeed, it's because they avoid a narrative and they stick to thematics. And it's a really interesting thematic um, narrative in this or not narrative, thematic idea, which is the the pressures of the uh, 20th century, the bureaucratization and the homogenization of life is squeezing meaning and purpose and squeezing, even squeezing people out of their homes, which is really interesting. But what I think makes it so compelling for me is that based, I think, on the tour that they went on is, is that Ray gets a closer look at the United States of America. And so you begin to see him sort of taking Americana ideas, but merging them together with his own um, his own background. So I uh, like like for me, one of the the, the great um, uh, songs on the record is Muswell Hillbilly, where he says, I'm a Muswell, Muswell Hillbilly boy, but my heart lies in old West Virginia. Never seen New Orleans, Oklahoma, Tennessee. Still, I dream of the Black Hills that I ain't seen. And it's just a really interesting song and er, and a really interesting album in that sense, where he's speaking about a common phenomenon that's happening on both sides of the Atlantic and is happening to rural people in America and happening to uh, people living in, in the suburbs of London, in the working class suburbs of London. It's really interesting in that way. She songs on here about Scott, you were saying. about the, the working class middle class as jeff or as jay mentioned like muswell hillbilly to me i almost hear like an arlo guthrie song straining to come out uh, of what ray's doing there he does a fine job but that's that's the way it hits hits me there, there there are good songs here i i this album though just has never grabbed me the way that others have and uh, perhaps intentionally so this was not an album made and designed to have hook after hook or to have hit after hit necessarily. There's only one song, if I remember correctly, that's even recorded with like modern musical equipment. That's 20th Century Man, the first track on this album, which is an excellent, excellent song. And the rest of this is meant to sound somewhat, I don't say lo-fi necessarily, but but low-key. It's not meant to sound full and big and, and rock. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The 20th Century Man starts out the album on a really strong path. Love Dave's slide guitar. Uh, I, I love the idea um, that 
he's just he's a man out of time right the, the breakdown of communities you can keep your uh, your modern writers you keep your smart modern painters he wants the old guys right he wants the old guys and you go deeper in here there's a track called complicated life guy goes to the doctor and complains about aches and pain the doctor says cut all those things out all right and like the doctor says hey my arm hurts don't when i do this don't do that anymore and so he said, well, life's overrated, life's complicated. So he stops doing all stuff, stops ironing, stops cleaning, stops going to work, stops reading the news. He's got nothing to do. And then he's got no money. And he tries to get a job, but he can't because he's got no food. He's got no hole. He's got holes in his socks, holes in his shoes. Things didn't work out very well for him when he took the uh, the, the path of, of sort of not caring about what was happening in his life personally, individually. It's very kind of like an Aesopian fable there. Yeah. <laughs> to be yeah. But again, I do think it's, it's somewhat of, I, I will probably go back to this again, but Ray's theme that you have to control what you can control. Mm-hmm. And in, in complicated life, what is most in his control, you know, how he looks, how he takes care of himself, he lets it all go to crap. And so his life goes to crap, right? Cut down the struggle and the strife. Such a complicated life. Like old men will have that love for when they come. Got no dinner and I got no supper. Holes in my shoes, I got the holes in my socks. And and I I think that sort of pulls through with a few other songs on uh, on this record um, where people make so this is this is pulling forward a bit. People make decisions and have to live with the consequences of those decisions, like immediately. Alcohol, uh, which is even sung in a bit of a slur by Ray, I think, used to be a winner. And then the pressures of life gets to him, the pressures of social life, the pressures of being being important and big for other people turn into booze and he he loses it all. His life goes goes to crap again. But it was his personal decision, right? His decision to turn to alcohol. Holloway Jail, later on, you've got um, um, a a woman who's succeeding in life, doing very well, met Frankie, who turned her to a life of crime. There was an influence, but the decision was hers to take part and to take the fall for the crime. So there's a lot of places here where it's the individual decisions, the personal decisions of these characters uh, in these stories and and their consequences that Ray is talking about and how you okay, you are responsible for what you decide to do. And you, you better take care of your home. You better take care of your backyard before worrying about anything else.
made the comparison in the past between the Kinks and the band. Uh, I would say this is where that comparison absolutely comes into its its most clear. Because I think of Muswell Hillbillies as Ray Davis's attempt to do his version of the band's Brown album. I'm very serious about it. This is a series of character sketches that is attempting to recreate or bring to a world that might not know anything about it. A series of sepia-toned, his own imaginary sort of legendarium, okay? But this thing is like, it's not as good an album as the band for the obvious reason that it doesn't have the sort of melodic and compositional strength that that record did. Or, you know, even for that matter, the versatility of expression. Those guys could just... They had more voices and they could play more instruments, right? But to me, this thing is just this wonderfully rough-hewn chainsaw sculpture of a record, right? It doesn't have any of the smooth edges. It's, I think it was Scott who triggered this observation in me just a couple of minutes ago when he, he pointed out how like, self-consciously retro all of the instrumentation on the record is. There's only one song that even sounds like it could be a modern rock song. But then everything else is very wooden and old in terms of the way it's arranged which is again has to be a self-conscious choice and you you just laugh as you know the debut record for rca ray davis clearly is like after you know he put out village green it didn't sell he put out arthur and it didn't sell he put out lola it's just got a straight ahead rock album wow it's sold like mint now it's like all right now that i got my new record contract it's back to putting out albums that aren't gonna sell here's a story about a sinner Used to be a winner who enjoyed a life of prominence and position. But the pressures at the office and his socialite engagements and his selfish wife's fanatical ambition. He turned into the booze and he got mixed up with the floozy and she led him to a life of indecision. The floozy made him spend his dough, she left him lying on skid row, drunk and lagged at some salvation army mission. It's such a shame Because this isn't this isn't um you know it's really interesting too because this is the terminus of this entire style for the next record it's not like it's complete like you know a, a giant rip it up and start all over again moment for the kinks but the way that their instrumental approach uh is is going to change horns become a very huge part of their sound and uh, i guess a lot of the sort of music hall influences reassert themselves but for muswell hillbillies you're left with uh, an album that can have you know something as sort of raw as alcohol or skin and Pones, uh, but it also has something as beautiful as Oklahoma USA, mm -hmm. which has always been my favorite song on the record. This piano ballad comes really in the middle of the second half of the record. And of course, this is a place that I don't know if Ray had ever been there yet or if he, he had been there touring or something like that. But, but of all the places to just randomly pick to write about, um, it's such a beautiful and sad lament. Our life we work, but work is a bore If life's for living, what's living for? She lives in a house that's near decay Built for the industrial revolution 
this entire album is actually about people who don't seem to like have too much going on. You, you know, you mentioned Scott talking about um, uh, who, who was it in Holloway Jail? You know, like that 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 girl who fell in with the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. Well, then you think of Skin and Bone. You know, the person who becomes like, you know, anorexic or something like that because of all their bad life habits after, you know, spending too much time eating. He's writing about damaged people, yeah. which makes it a very interesting and, and in a lot of ways, not a very happy album as well, which again, we're just talking, why didn't this record sell? We'll talk about being overdetermined. This one was never <laughs> going to sell. I do think it's one of the Kinks' great works, but it is the one among all of their great albums. Oh, gosh, I felt like I might have even said this all the way back when we did the first show i think this is the one i'll understand most if other people just don't really like yeah you know um jeff you said something there that i that real i was trying to figure out how to formulate it but when you compared it to the brown album i thought was a very good Hmm. comparison and and you mentioned the comparison based on the character sketches and these little vignettes which i think is very true but for me i think the other thing too it's uh, this album is really a a kaleidoscope of different musical themes that Ray's almost sort of doing maybe his weird version of the great Anglophone songbook in a, in a way that he's just going through these old, you know, there's a little blues, there's a little swing, there's all sorts of stuff in here. Um, it's much more varied than his previous albums, I would say even more so than something else, which was quite varied. Final thought on this, at least from my perspective, is I I just want to point the song Oklahoma out because this is going to be an an emerging theme in his his songwriting um, is the use of Hollywood and cinema, the big screen, as a form of escape for common folks. So when he's talking about, you know, Shirley Jones and Gordon McRae talking about, I think the movie, um, Oklahoma, the musical and Rita Hayworth and Doris, she's Rita Hayworth or Doris Day, Errol Flynn's going to take her away. I mean, we're going to see all of that sort of come back in celluloid heroes. And then it's going to be the entire theme of the, uh, of the vaudeville concept album, soap opera, um, this idea of people losing themselves and losing, getting away from the dreariness of their everyday lives by escaping through the big screen. And, and I think it's this this song, I love Oklahoma, USA. I think it's really well done. love that but and the vaudeville aspect the vaudeville aspect of the of the kinks is in fact i think what is about to start coming through i'm going to tell you this right now whenever i see ray davis wearing a top hat i start to get really nervous okay 
And it begins with the next album in their discography. And this is 1972's Everybody's in Showbiz. The title alone should tell you something about the way the focus of the Kinks' attentions has shifted. That's a very American kind of a concept. And indeed, this is the first of their records that's going to contain a new genre of Ray Davies' song, The Road Songs. Lots and lots and lots of songs from the Kinks in the future are going to be about what a drag or how interesting and or boring it may or may not be to be the, the life, to live the life of a touring musician because that is what the kinks are doing seems to be in some ways conceptually themed about that because it's the it's the weirdest double album of all time it's a studio record and then a almost defiantly bizarre quote-unquote live album on the second disc which i might address a little later if only to dismiss as as some sort of weird experiment but as for the, the studio record, uh, this is the first one that people treat as something of a disappointment relative to what the Kinks had already done. I think Scott and I might have similar views on it. I came, I've always felt the same way about it. I know that I've never loved the big hit on this, which is the one that ends it. It's the Celluloid Heroes. Celluloid heroes that never feel any pain. You know what? I don't give a crap about Hollywood. I never cared for Candle in the Wind. I never cared for any kind of movie or myth-making stuff in music. It can all go take a flying leap as far as I'm concerned. I know Ray is trying to make a somewhat more delicate emotional point with that song, but the the, the hook for it, like, you know, when he talks about walking on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, I'm like, boy, how, could that be any more touristy, Ray? I mean, the Hollywood Walk of Fame with you on Sunset Boulevard, man. I don't know. That kind of stuff might appeal to Brits, but for an American, I'm as jaded as they get. I wish my life was a non-stop Hollywood movie show. Fantasy war of satellite films and heroes. Because satellite heroes never feel any Nevertheless, I've come back to this album and been surprised at how much better it is than my memories of it were. But maybe, Scott, you might be the person to tell us, do you feel the same way about it? I do feel the same way. In fact, of all of the albums that I went back, well, I went back to all of them. Um, well, I kind of skimmed through preservation. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but of all these albums, the one that perhaps increased in stature most is this one. Everybody's in showbiz. I, I absolutely 
sort of partnered it up with the rest of these mid-70s albums, which I largely find disappointing. But I think Everybody's in Showbiz is a very, very good record. It, it is not as good as what came before it, but it certainly has some excellent moments. As Jeff mentioned, there's a, a new theme, the rock star life, the, the road songs, the monotony of touring. Guys, there are three songs on this album about food. <laughs> um, uh, but the uh, 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 what motorway and the hot potato song and a maximum consumption. But it's I'm, probably I'm, Jim Gaffigan's favorite uh, <laughs> Kinks album because yeah, all the food stuff. But know. but a maximum consumption, it's almost less about food than it is the idea of sort of rock band as machine. The the food here is just is secondary. The food is energy and energy lets, is fuel it's right it's just fuel energy yeah. lets you work fuel lets you work and you repeat and you go about it and even the way the song is constructed um it is sort of like a rote mechanical sort of construction to the song too so i mean it's not even it's not the enjoyment it is the process of eating and expending energy and eating again that maximum consumption tries to to get right excess of living sure keeps running me down Hotel, which is, I think there's even a French horn on this song, which Jeff had mentioned earlier, horns become a bigger deal to the kinks in this era of the band. Uh, sitting in my hotel is just trying to figure out what the heck you're you're doing, which I imagine you have a lot of time to do on the road. Who, who am I? Who am I trying to kid, essentially? Am, am I really who I think I am and who others think that I am. What's it all leading to? All these questions you ask while sitting in a hotel room uh, uh, on the road. And I guess that also deals with unreal reality, which is just before that, right? Is it a dream or is it the real reality? And I think part of this too is talking about uh, the ephemeral nature of showbiz too. What's real? What lasts? What's for show? If my friends could see me now Dressing up in my bow tie Prancing round the room like some outrageous hoof They would tell me that I'm just being used They would ask me what I'm trying to prove They would see me in my hotel Watching late shows till the morning Writing songs for old time of show business too which we talked about earlier which is who knows what will become a hit who knows what will be popular there's a song 
uh, look on the look a little on the sunny side here, which is essentially about that. It's hard to please the people every single time, which Ray should know more than almost anyone else. Putting out these, you know, impeccable records and finding that the the music buying audience just doesn't care. He even says in here, you, you got to laugh. Don't let your critics ever upset you. The public wants says they want one thing, then they want something else. And you're probably not fast enough to make up for it anyway. So just do what you're happy with. Make the art that you want to make. There's a lot of sort of, I don't mean this in a bad way, but navel gazing here about what life in music means and how do you find satisfaction. I, coming back to it, again, I liked it a lot more than I did in the past. You sing them the blues and then they ask for a happy tune. And when you start to smile, they say, give me that rhythm and blues. And when you give them the rhythm and blues, they'll simply smile and say, we didn't want to hear you play. We didn't like you anyway. It's very hard to please the people every single time. But look a little on the sunny side. Yeah, I think this uh, this album really represents. I mean, you guys suggested this the the days of the arty, nerdy, inks concept albums that are are loved by record hounds is coming to an end. Right, that's that's coming to an end, and this and now is now the, the days opening. of the arty. The, now the days of the arty nerdy concept albums that are loved by nobody except <laughs> weird kinks freaks is right. about to begin. But the, at the same time, though, what they're I, I want to tell a story, and I've been thinking about when when I want to introduce this idea. Um, I saw in two thousand six. I saw in Chicago. I saw Ray Davis. Uh, I saw him live. I didn't like Ronnie Newmaster. I can't went to a Ray Davis show. And I had long been a fan of the kinks of that great period between like 65 and 71 or whatever, up through Muswell Hillbillies. And when I went to that show, I encountered a kinks fan base that was completely different their point of entry was completely different than my point of entry. Um, and I was introduced to all sorts of weird Hanks fan base live things. Like one thing they would do, they, they do is they take paper plates and they throw them on stage um, and write with a song on it and they'll do the song. Um, Jeff, you mentioned the live album, right? The Banana Boat song is on on the live album. That's that's a staple of their live act. Um, and, and so really, in a lot of respects, this album marks the, the point at which the kinks are now embarking on a project to build an audience in the United States of America on the back of their live performances. And increasingly through the 70s, they build for themselves a cult following really it's really what it is it's it's really a cult following in the 70s um you know they're doing theaters is what they're doing um 
So, and, and so I think that album is interesting in this regard. I, I, I agree that it is, it is navel gazing. I think it certainly is, but it's also, again, it's really funny. You know, he, he, the, 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 what, what song motorway is a fantastic song. It's just so funny. I mean, like I complain about traffic all the time. I'm never as funny as when he complains about traffic in the song motorway. Motorway tea is warm and wet. Rain is upon and it's four in the morning and it's all I can Never seen lose that motorway lose thousands of people passing through. It's enough to put you off of that motorway food. For, for my money, I, I think my favorite song in the album and, and maybe the best kind of take on fame in the in the album is actually Dave's You Don't Know My Name, um, which I, th- I think is uh, is a really good song. And it, it demonstrates what a what a sophisticated songwriter he had become by the early 1970s. And there's really. It's very affecting and, and really sad in its its way. I see that life is such a simple game. I said I'm watching for my moving train. I'll be right today. I'm not alone this way. Does anybody know your name? I just find the live album that was appended to the end of this to be some sort of ridiculously demonstrative act, right? You're like, oh, live kinks. I kind of was interested. I would be interested in finding out what the kinks sounded like, given that they'd been banned from touring in America for so many years. And now they weren't playing the hits. They they didn't have to play You Really Got Me and all that kind of stuff. So what do we get? We literally get half of that live disc is just Muswell Hillbillies recreated (laughs) More drunkenly. And then you look on the back and you think you see Lola. Oh, great. At least they're playing Lola. No, they're not. They're just playing the crowd chanting Lola, Lola, Lola. It's like an excerpt from the end of the song. <laughs> it is got. It is intentionally the least satisfying song selection that they could have chosen, which tells me that, I mean, the hand of Ray alone must have been involved in choosing those songs. <laughs> to what yeah. end? I know not. But when you're doing a Kinks live record uh, and, and the only things that you choose are like, you know, the chorus section that the crowd sings of Lola, Top of the Pops, uh, and then a bunch of covers and then half of Muswell Hillbillies, your lowest selling album, you definitely got it in for the buyers. And that actually, I guess, kind of takes us to the next phase, entire phase of the Kinks career. Well, where I guess you've got to say that maybe Ray had it in for the buyers. What do we make 
I guess instead of talking about the entire thing as the quote, um, you know, uh, concept album phase of the King's career, which runs through a, a solid four records in four years. Why don't we first deal with the monstrosity that is known as preservation? This is a record that came out in two forms. There's Act One, which is a single disc album. Then Preservation Act Two came out the next year. For some reason, it's a double album. Like, why is Act Two twice the length of Act One? <laughs> it's because this is the most, the least organized concept you've ever seen in your life. It's called Preservation. What does that make you think of, folks? Of course, it makes you think if you're a Kinks fan of the Kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society. Make no mistake, Ray wanted you to think that. He's working along very similar lines and themes. See Johnny Thunder sitting on his motorbike, riding along the highway. Rock and roll songs from the 1950s, buzzing around in his grave. But Johnny Thunder, he's one of the original bebop generation. And he's got no time for complicated music or too much sophistication. Except... God help me, his intent apparently didn't come out, by the way, in the mix in terms of production. This is not like Quadrophenia where you can actually get the concept. No, this is what a failed concept album looks like. So the idea is that this time it would have a story. There would be a narrative and it would be the worst kind of narrative of, of all. It would be an apocalyptic story. Okay. So it would be one of those things where there is an evil dictator who wants a lot of money and then he gets overthrown by a popular figure who's also evil in their own ways. And meanwhile, you're just saying to yourself, I'd like to hear some nice tunes about phenomenal cats and village greens. There is genuinely great music to be found on Preservation Act 1 and Act 2. Good luck finding it unless you're a devoted Kinks fan or you're the sort of person who does podcasts where you're required to listen intently to all three sides of this. This is the moment where Davis undoubtedly loses the plot and nobody quite understands what happened. But what we're left with is an album, a series of albums, which doesn't include its title track, which was released as a non-album single to explain the plot, doesn't include one of its best songs, has a bunch of announcement tracks sprinkled throughout it. And still, once you've pieced together the plot, isn't worth it. The game isn't even worth the candle, in my opinion, which is something I'll get to later. And yet, after all of this criticism, the music on these records, if you could boil it down to one record, it would be the best of the King's career after, you know, I'd say Lola easily. If you could do that, there are gems to be found here, but good luck finding them. Tell the world that we finally did it. We made a man who stole the Precondition thoughts and emotions. Push button artificial man. But did you ever want to live forever? We'll hit your chance to be a total automaton. Cause we've improved on God's creation. 
As albums, uh, Preservation, Act One and Act Two, they they don't work. Um, I think it's important when we think about this, not as a way to excuse them because they decided to put this out as an album, but it was intended and it was purposed as a live, dramatic, um, yes kind of performance and it doesn't it does not translate it 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 simply does not but and so in that respect it's it's a failure but when we think about what 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 are the kinks doing here in the mid 70s like has ray gone around the bend no he's like i said what they're doing is they're taking a kind of vaudeville act on the road um with these sort of nutty over the top stories and they're sprinkling them in with their hits. And there's a lot of acting and drama in the actual stage play, if you want to call it that. I mean, there's sets and there's dialogue and there's all sorts of things like that, that, that none of that show up in the, um, in the, uh, in the albums. And I, I think what he really should have done here to your point, Jeff, is he should have just made this like the songbook of the, the vaudeville play that he was putting together. He should have just taken, I, by my count, I saw one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I would say 10, 11, there's 11, 12 great tracks between preservation act one and act two. He should have just put all of it's those on this one fine album, right? Yeah. 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 When you take, when you take the, the 12, there's about 12 songs on here um, that are just fantastic. If he had just put those into an album without, without trying to create um, a story, it would have worked because that's sort of two steps in it. You know, remember Lifehouse, Pete Townsend right. wanted Lifehouse to be used, this like ridiculous exactly. thing, and it never would have worked. You would right. listen to Pete Townsend's ideas for Lifehouse, and you think to yourself, "Well, you know what? I'm really glad somebody intervened and told you to screw that and just release who's next instead." It's exactly, that's what he should have done. Right. That's right. what he should have done. I know you said you you hadn't listened too carefully to preservation. I well, I, at one point I did, <laughs> long ago, and then forgot everything. And then, you right, and then I I, I did it again. Uh, I, I sort of zoomed through. I will admit for the prep for the show, 
but um, but nothing stopped me from zooming through. I guess that's the point I want to make. I, 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 it's a real mess. And I know Jeff said, if you if you look, you can find some good songs. Um, okay, yeah, there's one that I identified. I mean, there's, there's more than one. One I identified this Sweet Lady Genevieve is truly a great song. That's right in the front half of Preservation Act One. It's it's a great Ray Davis song. Very catchy, good use of harmonica, bit of an earworm, earworm when it comes to melody. That is a really good song. So Sweet Lady Genevieve for sure. Oh. After that, it gets messy. I mean, Act Two has all sort of transitional materials, so the plot can be explained. Um, there's a song on, I think it's Act One. Here comes Flash. I think it's Act One, which uh, which actually just sounds like Paranoid by Black Sabbath. It's the same riff, except over that end, you sing Here comes oh, with Flash. with no balls. It's Paranoid <laughs> with no balls. Like I remember my notes on this. Like this is almost like an okay song if this band could actually play guitar and it sounds so wimpy too yeah. oh yeah so it, it is look I, I'm, I'm here for the folks out there I, I i can't recommend they take the time needed to 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 page through preservation act one and two to try to find the highlights uh you guys might recommend a few tunes again my, mine is sweet lady genevieve and i i'll let jay talk a bit about this because he's the one that turned me on to it but one of the great songs from the preservation era that they did play uh, during the live shows is a tune called slum kids and that is mm-hmm. a, a great kinks song that perhaps he wants to say a bit more about, but that didn't make the record. <laughs> so it's not on preservation one and two. Yeah. Slum kids didn't make the record. Um, I think it first showed up in an official release on the preservation act Two. Uh, it's a Re-issue, bonus track on right? the CD. Like said, yeah, this, and, and there's a really good live version of it on one of their box sets too, that I, I quite enjoy. And, and it's like, you know, they really rip off on it. It's a nice blues rocker. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it, why didn't it make it? Because there had to be five separate announcement tracks of preservation acts. Look at all the slump kids all around you. Only never stood a Literally, it's just Ray Davis, I assume, or some guy in a British accent saying, oh, well, Mr. Flash and Mr. Black, are their forces are moving into range. Oh, there are many casualties. I'm like, 
what the hell am I listening to? Why am I listening to this? They're, they're, I, I, first of all, I mean, Scott, you are forgiven for just not <laughs> wanting to waste the time with this stuff. I totally understand it, but I did. And I'll point out these two things. First of all, I think Preservation Act 1, ironically, is the weaker of the two records, even though it's the one that has the, quote, less narrative-dependent songs. Like, uh, first, I, one of these things is, is you understand the way I hear music always is that I'm a music-first-oriented person. That's I hear, I hear the music before I hear anything else. Um, so the words, I can tune them out. And I don't like a lot of the melodies on that first one. The one that you didn't mention is Sitting in the Midday Sun, which I think is quite nice as well from Preservation Act 1. But Preservation Act 2 has this incredible passel of songs that musically I actually think are some of the finest stuff in the Kinks' 70s career that have been burdened down like poor Harrison Bergeron just weighted down with all of these horrible clunky narrative lyrics that force them to deliver these, these, these points in the story and these morals and these you know, kind of almost at this point, boring themes that Ray Davis has hammered on far more interestingly in past songs already. And it disguises the fact that a song like He's Evil, which of course, as you might imagine, because of the name of it, is about one of the characters in the plot. The music of He's Evil is some of the best that the Kinks have ever done. out how good a song when a solution actually is nobody gives is practically progressive rock that's actually the surprising aspect of this part of the king's career there's a lot of prog kind of structural ideas contained within these songs where oh where is love is a very pretty ballad i don't know who the female vocalist in this band is you know it's like i looked at the credits like who's the woman singing this song i don't know who it is but it's actually a very pretty song you know, and, and I and I look at songs like Artificial Man. Artificial Man, I know Scott, you never wanted to die dive into these stuff, but finally Dave Davis comes back and, and he sings and he sings that song and it takes off into a piano groove. This stuff is proggy and it's good, and then it finally ends with Salvation Road, which is like you know, when you were finally wondering, are the old kinks dead? Are we listening to this vaudeville crap for the rest of our lives? That's a late sixties Kinks era rocker, a genuinely great song. It's probably the only one here that lyrically on its own terms, rises above that strange crabbed plot. 
It's going to be a little chorus. We'll all walk along. We'll all sing a song. We'll all mark time as we go. There are wonderful musical moments on these two records, but how can anybody in good conscience recommend that you wade? I can. I will recommend it. I, are you going to do that? Are you going to do that for the next one too? Yes. Okay. Well, yes. here's the funny thing. I might, I might join you because here's the part where people talk about preservation as this sort of bizarre, like it's like the way they talk about the beach boys, smiley smile. Like, right. oh, God, that was ugly, but that's memorably ugly. But nobody talks just like nobody talks about like Wild Honey and Friends in 2020. Nobody talks about this part of the King's career because this is no. post-preservation, but still doing rock operas. Yeah. And we are now into an – I cannot tell you how much less appealing an album, title, conceit, or pitch – could conceivably be to me than to call an album soap opera and then to give it that cover and sell it to me like that with like a a narrator giving me a little interstitial commentary on it. This should be the worst album ever made. And yet I kind of like it. Jay, maybe you're going to tell me a little bit more about that. say uh, a defense of preservation i find it to be a charming mess to borrow phrase from the black crows i like it um it i find it i the the announcements they don't bother me i just think the whole thing is just i think it's just adorable frankly it's a it's a mess it's a train wreck but there's there's so much fun on that album i just i'll say one thing too before we move on to um before we move on to soap opera i'll I'll say i I have to mention sort of like the the cheekiness of of preservation is the song one of the survivors which is a sequel to the song johnny thunder on Kings of the Village Green, and it tells the story of Johnny Thunder, um, 
And, and I and I just think it's so funny because at one point, you know, Ray goes, oh, Johnny Thunder is a little overweight and his sideburns are turning gray, but he still likes to be Bob Boogie and jive, you know, and, and he like Ray is anticipating boomer nostalgia culture <laughs> by I, I don't know. I mean, a decade or so. I don't know how it, so I, it's just I just think it's fun. And I think if you take this middle period, like just get out of your head, the idea and the expectation that the kinks are doing anything in the context of rock, that they're doing anything like high art or anything like that. And, and just take it in the spirit of just fun that was meant to be appreciated live. And we can't. And I think that of their, of their four or three, depending on how you count them of their three, vaudeville concept albums i think soap opera holds together the best as a concept i think uh, you can actually find and so if people are listening and they're interested in this if you go to wolfgang's vault i think they have shows from both the soap opera and schoolboys in disgraced era where you can actually like hear the show as that's just what you've been waiting for folks Yes. Boys in Disgrace and Soap Opera era <laughs> live kinks. I know this is right. what Scott's vision of hell must be. But again, though, the, he, you know, the, here's the thing. This is this is the other thing I, I want I want to point out. Soap opera hit number fifty one in the states. It hit it, it, no. It, it Schoolboys in Disgrace. All those hit, ladies wanting to read their stories. I guess they, mm. they it, it hit forty five. In the state, schoolboys in disgrace hit, hit forty five in dis. This is a band that is slogging through theaters all across the country, the United States of America, taking this these ridiculous over the top shows on tour and building a fan base. And like I said, I had no idea that this fan base existed These until I went, we're talking about when you said this is had a totally different entry point. Exactly. From That's what I find. I find this so interesting about them that, that they, that they have this fan base that was built on the banana boat song. It's just, to me, it's just <laughs> so interesting and just charming about this band. So I'll, I'll just say with respect to soap opera, um, I soap opera is my favorite of all of these. I think it's it's I think it's got the most consistent sort of um, uh, music on it. The basic idea is Ray is playing. And, and again, it's all very over the top and it's meant to, it's meant to be watched. But Ray is the star maker and he, he claims that he can he can make anybody a star. And so as a challenge, he's going to find the most dull ordinary man uh and make him a star and that person's name is norma or norman uh and hilarity ensues um you know there's the first i think it's the the first the second song ordinary people basically like ray is going to sleep with norman's wife he says for the sake of art this is very funny um and and the hinge of the whole thing and if you look at the if you look at the uh, the album cover, the hinge of the whole thing are the ducks, the song Ducks on the Wall. Um, 
is 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 the song where the star maker can't he can't hack it anymore he can't stand the wife's portrait of ducks on the wall and and then and then we learn at the end which i think is kind of an interesting twist in the song facing the crowd that it was actually norman all the time and he was just imagining himself as the uh as as something that he wasn't so this is sort of like a coming around of like what we talked about with oklahoma um but along the way you get these really fun songs everybody's a star is a great song um have another drink is a great song um holiday romance is a fantastic song that is really 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 funny uh facing the crowd is really good i loved ducks on the wall is not going to be for everybody uh, but I love it. I think it's just a hoot. Um, and you can't stop the music at the end is just a fantastic song. I think as an album, this this one of the of all of them holds together the best. And uh, I again, I find it thoroughly charming. I am an unapologetic enthusiast of the Kinks vaudeville era. I've got to stop faking it. I've got to start facing it. I'm gonna take my final bow Then I'm gonna take my place in the crowd I know I'll get used to it I've gotta stop acting like a clown Now, Scott, I know that next to your poster in your office of Joe Jackson's I'm the Man, you have one of the Kinks soap opera as well behind you. It's not. It's schoolboys in disgrace. (laughs) I see. I confuse them all the time. So do you want to go first here before I add my surprisingly positive thoughts? Yeah, I just have I I I just have a couple of notes. It's not my idea of hell. They're they're not that bad. I, I, I don't think they're bad albums. Um, but I don't necessarily think they're great albums either. Uh, soap opera, J- uh, Jay really told you what you need to know. Everybody's a star is a great song. That is a very good song. And you can almost, you can almost see the narrative. I think the reason it holds together so well is because if you just read the track listings, you can see the narrative. Ordinary people, nine to five, when work is over, have another drink. I mean, you can, you can see exactly how that narrative runs through. Uh, soap opera. Uh, it does have some of those, some of that narration that was in, um, it was in preservation. Uh, June, I think it's June. June Ritchie is the voice of uh, of Norman's wife. So there's a female vocalist that play that sings throughout a number of these songs. Um, there's, I like, I, I do like underneath the neon sign, which is right near uh, the the end of the record. And it's not. Here's I, okay. Here's I finally found this note. Um, what I mostly got from soap opera is I think the songs are pretty, pretty decent. Some are really good. I found myself just getting a little tired of the star narrative that Ray had been using now for, you know, X number of albums. And so this idea where you run from everybody's a star 
and I know it's there's the there's the twist that there's uh, you know the musician is changing places with Norman, the most ordinary man. But you're still sort of dealing with this, this idea of who's a star and what it takes to be a star compared to the way the middle class or lower class people live. You know, when work is over, they do go to have another drink and maybe get turned into six drinks, right? And I, I, I tired a bit of that narrative through soap opera. Okay, so one of the things I want to emphasize about this is that the stuff that Jay told me about the staging of soap opera is actually a revelation to me. For these this later period of the Kinks music, it was because I find this sort of vaudeville idea, the stage play act presentation to be sort of repellent to my sensibilities, I've learned to dismiss it outright. I don't want to know what these songs look like on stage. I don't know if I want to hear this album presented on stage as like parts of a sort of a narrative or a story. I'm not here for a Broadway show. What I'm here for are the songs. And the thing that I have to say about soap opera, can't believe I'm going into such detail about one of the most like maligned albums of the King's career is that musically it's not bad. It's much more raucous than anything they've been doing before. That's the thing. Like you were getting almost progressive at times on albums like Preservation Act 2. But when you hear stuff like you like when work is over, uh, that to me is Muswell Hillbillies. And by the way, I like that song. It's all about having another drink and another and another. Don't stop and think, just have another drink. Don't stop and think, have another drink. When work is over, relax and hit the bars, go down the boozer, and have another jar because drinking can help ease the strain of this boring occupation. That's the hook that hits you on when work is over. And then here's the moment where you get sent scrambling back to your notes. And it made me laugh too. The next song is actually called Have Another Drink, right? (laughs) After a song where the whole hook that you remember is Have Another Drink, then comes the song Have Another Drink. And it's two different kinds of drinking to distraction. And that's what's interesting about these two little sketches. The first is a guy who's just like a working man at the pub having like six too many. Then it's the guy who gets home and looks at his life. You know, looks like, where's my job heading? Nowhere. What's the stuff in the news? Oh, God, everybody's about to nuke one another. It's two different reasons to drink yourself to distraction. Two different two different interesting little character sketches. But I think actually the point that that – I thought Scott was getting there and he didn't quite get there where he talked about how the, his like the star theme for Davis has been overplayed at this point. I think in general, his sort of obsession about the sort of lives of everyday folks, this work a day, I think that entire milieu, he's tapping it out. And you can tell because he ends up shifting his focus very soon to mm-hmm. different kinds of things. Because he's running out of things to say. That's, you know, I think the problem with both soap opera and schoolboys in disgrace. I guess we might as well just dispense with it quickly. It's not as terrible as the album cover, which I think is one of the worst album covers of all time. It is literally a cartoon, sad, little weeping school, naughty schoolboy showing his ass 
to get a paddling from the headmaster because corporal punishment, I guess, back in 1976 was still part of the cultural milieu. It isn't anymore. You know, you, you can't paddle, uh, you know, mean schoolboys these days. But I don't know what you say about this. There's one track on here that actually shocks me with how good and sophisticated it is. And that's right near the end of it. It's called No More Looking Back. It's one of those things where you suddenly realize, wow, this has become a professional studio band at this point. They play real sophisticated music. Then you've got stuff like, I don't know, like there's there's some primitive stuff like the hard way. Sounds like it was beamed in from 1965. No wonder it became a big road hit. Uh, The rest of this is generic as they ever got. Boy, Jay, you're going to tell me it's your favorite Kinks album now, aren't you? (laughs) No, but I'm going to quote Dave Davis. Schoolboys in Disgrace is a great album. I saw this years ago. He made this comment, and it's in the Wikipedia entry for Schoolboys in Disgrace. This is what Dave said. At the time, we were so busy doing it and getting it out and touring and playing it. Over a matter of three years, it was gone, and we were doing something like something else. But when you draw this into the present, it's like, oh, my God, what the F is this? How did we do that? I don't agree with that. A um, couple thoughts on this. I, I I actually like the hard way. It's one of my. I, I really like that song. Well, I think that this is a this is a really if, if you miss the rock and roll kinks, this album is very it's got a lot. It's got a lot more of an edge to it. Uh, Dave is much more front and center. Um, and so that it has that going for it. I think that the concept in this is weaker. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Like, I, I think the the song Education, for instance, is just not a very good song. Um I think it's sort of about memories and then how memories fade. Yeah, I think you're right that he's sort of playing things out. And even the fact that his old themes are now being translated into vaudeville shows is is a sign that 
things are winding down. Um, I would say that of all uh, of their you agree, three- Jay, that, that, that the most obvious possible way to overthink a concept is to turn it into a vaudeville show. I would say probably that means you've been you've been chewing it over for far too long. If you can set it to that kind of song and dance pattern, this is just a fact. Pro- I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. I think th- there's there's some fun tracks. I, I love No More Looking Back. I'm with you on that one. Um, but yeah, I, I think at this point the, the, the thing is winding down. I mean, I, I will say again, right. This is they're They are successfully building an audience here. I mean, this stuff got no radio play. It got nothing right. Like they are they're They, they muscled this thing to 45, number 45 on the LP charts, which is impressive in a certain respect. But I think it, it speaks to the fact- I didn't know that fact. factoid before you told me, by the way, Jay. Yeah. That, that genuinely blows my mind. It explains a ton about how they were later able to sort of like, where did the Kinks late 70s explosion come from? Well, yeah. they'd been laying the groundwork for a very long time. They had. And so um, Schoolboys in Disgrace is your last album with RCA, which I think Ray- if you look at what he did for RCA, like he well and truly screwed RCA over. <laughs> they didn't get a single hit song. They didn't get a single hit record. Now they move over. Um, they sign with Arista. And I don't remember somebody famous at Arista, somebody who was in charge of Arista at the time. Names is Clive, Clive Davis. Davis I assume. Clive Davis. That's right. Clive Davis was, you know, saw the, I think saw the, the shows that the people's turning out and said, we can work with this, but no more concept albums, boys. We're going to go straight ahead with rock and roll, right? We're going to no more, no, no more trying to make grand points, Ray, just start writing songs. Thus begins and, a different phase of the career. Before we move on to that, I know Scott has just been champing at the bit. I mean, all of this, he's been inundating my email inbox with these lengthy essays about schoolboys in disgrace. So Scott, <laughs> you want to tell us like all your brilliant thoughts about this, your most favorite Kinks album of all time? Up until uh, the early 80s, almost the mid 80s, I guess, this is my least favorite uh, album by the Kinks uh, that we're covering on this show, at least. I, I think there's probably better uh, songs scattered throughout preservation than on Schoolboys in Distress. I think it's not terribly engaging. I think it's flat in some areas. I know the thought is just going back to s- a simple rock and roll. There's kind of this uh, theme, again, not a concept, but a theme of this nostalgia trip through childhood. And so you have some like the 50s rock and the little doo-wop harmony in some places. I don't think it really ever pulls together very well. The only part I found intriguing, interesting, there's this three-song suite, uh, I'm in Disgrace and Headmaster in the Hard Way, which Jay had mentioned earlier. And that kind of tells the story uh, that, that Dave had told earlier uh, in the song we talked about with um, not, not quite the same, but it, it's, you know, Dave's sexual exploits as a as a teenager um you know in yeah. disgrace for for messing around and dealing with the headmaster in the hard way and i think actually though that little suite in the middle of schoolboys in disgrace works out okay works pretty well the, i think i'm in disgrace is my favorite song on on schoolboys i do like the hard way as jay does that's the only time for me that schoolboys in disgrace really comes alive as i said it's my, it's my least favorite album we're going to cover on this episode up until uh, well, a few from now. Yeah, right. Until until the bitter end. 
But we're not there yet. And in actually a really kind of wonderful and unexpected way for me, this is this is really the reason I wanted to do this show over again, which is this late 70s rebirth era of the Kinks' career. Now, one of the things that I have always found funny is that I've always thought of Clive Davis and Arista Records as one of the more snake-bitten ones in sort of the history of rock music. I don't know. You go back and you look at the stuff that was on their label, and it's sort of it, – it, it's the emblematization of all the chintzy – 80s, late 70s pop music that like didn't last, that sort of like was the gorm that you heard on the radio and it, and it doesn't really have a good critical reputation. A lot of like bands past their prime, put out their worst albums on that label. But he actually got something really good out of the kinks. And maybe it was the reason that Jay explained, you know, he said, okay, yeah, no more concept albums. Because the next album that comes out in 1977 is Sleepwalker. And I would argue this is secretly the kinks' most underrated album in history. If you were tired of the concepts, if you were tired even of sort of the, you know, the boring, rockest moves, here was something that actually finally felt new and fresh. The songs were immediate. They were short. They were straight ahead. Some Somewhere halfway through the album, you realize that Dave Davis has actually learned how to play guitar really well, and he's very good at it. It's like there's a song here called Mr. Big. It's a slow, bluesy number, and I'm listening to the Kinks and realizing I'm enjoying the sound of the Kinks as a band, which is not something I ever normally would say to myself. This the Big. But this thing starts great with Life on the Road, which is a great little straight-ahead rock song. Another road song, of course, but Mm -hmm. it's got a solid verse. It's got a really sunny chorus, and the synths on that actually work, even though it's mostly piano-based. And Jeff, Um, it's a road song, but it's a a love of the road song. And there's a total shift in some of the lyrical content here. Some of it doesn't matter as much because the songs are so strong, but Life on the Road... Past albums would be Life on the Road stinks and the food stinks and it's it's hard it's it's a hard life and you know success is 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 uncertain. Life on the road, I want life on the road. Give me life on the road. It feels like more it feels like a mission statement song, going to all those things that Jay has been talking about, how they slowly built this audience, how they slowly built this crowd, how they slowly built, you know, these records that inched their way into the top fifty an acknowledgement that this is the way that they had been able to survive. I mean, the UK, and I don't think we've mentioned that the UK didn't give two craps about any of this stuff. This never, none of these albums charted in the UK for a decade. The Kings and didn't chart so in the UK. They feel so British to us, right? Yes. And they didn't chart there. Right. And it was, nope. it was, yep. it was an American audience. And I think Life on the Road, it's not a coincidence that it's the first song on this very, very good album, Sleepwalker, because it embraces, um, you know, this small town kid who finds the big city now both exciting and intimidating, but he likes it. He wants life on the road. That's changed. I'm a real hungry jake.
I mean, I, I love the singles from this album as well. Jukebox music, it's like just, a, I heard it on WXRT the other day. I think they were doing like 1977 in review or something like that. And like, I had I had never heard that song on the radio. I was like, man, I'll take this over any Steve Miller band song <laughs> ever made. At any point, it has that same kind of easygoing vibe. It's maybe a little bit too long. But gosh, it's great. And the other one is Sleepwalker, the title oh, track. Outstanding. That's a great, when you think, you know, oh, the kinks have forgotten how to rock and roll. They come out with this. The guitars are actually dueling with one another. You know, it has a lot more energy and a killer ending on Sleepwalker. All these songs have great dynamics in them as well. I think my single favorite song on the entire record might be Stormy Sky. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's this this lovely chorus in that ballad and then this fantastic play out at the end. Kinks are like, you know, I guess this is where people say like, yo, I can see them now playing in an arena. The Kinks were never truly an arena rock band the way Boston was. But when they're finally putting together like this is great rock music that still has the sensitivity of Ray Davis's lyrics, but feels so much more immediate. And I guess maybe they needed a year off to do it or something like that. But it really does feel like a rebirth. And this is this is easily my favorite of their later era albums. Jay? Well, I for me it's it's a no skip record. I love I love this album. I think it's a um I, I think that uh the vaudeville stuff to me are sort of flawed diamonds in the rough. This to me is wonderful. I love this record. I, I, I think the music is fantastic. I think Ray's sense of humor on this is just he's back to his old kind of uh, devilish ways. Uh, it great. It, Sleepwalker is, 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 I think the quintessential. It's perfect for the title track because it's a great song, a great riff. Dave plays fantastic. And Ray's got this really, you know, you think you're just sort of bopping along to it. And then you listen to the lyrics. When nighttime comes, I start to creep. I prowl around when you're fast asleep. I walk around on my tippy toes and I get into places that nobody knows. I'm always around. If you want to meet, you can find me on almost every street. You know, just it's like creepy. When nighttime comes, I start to creep. I around when you're fast asleep. I 
walk around on my tippy toes And I get into places that nobody knows I'm always around if you want to meet You can find me on almost every street You always get me on the telephone I'll even come to your home if you're ever alone sorts of little things all through this album um you know a great one is the rap, uh, on, the rap on later period kinks often is like oh they sacrifice the subtlety of their lyrics for like you know chart success and i guess you know by the time you get into give the people what they want i'll grant the point i think they true. were yeah right but but here the, not, not here this is just yeah. great yeah, this song. I I think my favorite moment on the song is this. Is I, I love the the closer. Life goes on. I uh-huh. love that song. Uh-huh. I think it's a great song. Yeah. Um, and and I my favorite line in it is um, it's the fourth verse. He says, "My bank went broke and my well ran dry. It was almost enough to contemplate suicide. I turned on the gas, but I soon realized." I hadn't settled my bills, so they cut off my supply. <laughs> I mean, it's just funny. You commit suicide because you haven't put your affairs in order. <laughs> you know, and the whole album is like that. And for me, it's it's really the first album since Muswell Hillbillies that doesn't have a skip on it. I love it. It's a great album. covered quite literally everything in my notes. My last point was going to be on Life Goes On, and Jay just said it. Yeah, Life Goes On, A, is a great song, wonderful organ work, and I love those big, long, descending vocal lines in the verses. Really neat choice. And yeah, that verse is is perfect and shows some of the humor and uh, sort of winking uh, nature that, that Ray brings back to to this album title track fantastic the title track sweet sleepwalker we all love it to me it just sounds like 67 68 era kinks we, we talked in that first episode about how they took none i mean intentionally took none of the lessons of what was successful with early kinks to you know bridge into the, the, that next era it's like they went back and remembered, oh, this stuff works, you know, an acoustic on top of an electric works, a really catchy chorus works, really biting, you know, wicked, 
riffs from Dave work. And all that comes together on, on Sleepwalker, the title track. Life on the Road, great song. Yeah, the pro- go, go ahead. That's a great point is that the production of it, it neither sounds like 70s modern nor like, oh, still stuffed in a sock the way it did in the early 60s. But it has those sort of like timeless values that mm-hmm. you associated yeah. with the great era of them. Yeah. Stormy Sky, Jukebox Music. I mean, you guys mentioned every song on my list. Sleepwalker is a really good album. And to steal Jay's Thunder, who's been keeping track of chart positions, number 21, Sleepwalker hit number 21 on the album chart. So you have a, a, a jump in success. And again, you have sort of this, this, this life on the road that they can go tour and support and find audiences that want to hear what they're playing. Yeah, great record. I, mean, I guess it is. And it's followed up by a record that isn't isn't quite as great, but is on that same level, which is 1978's Misfits. Here's a song for all the middlemen who get forgotten time and time again. Here's a message for the little guy, don't let the situation pass you by. You're in the middle while the big mouths fight. You get it from the left and the right, ain't it crazy? So get up off your easy chairs, we got lots to do out there, well, we? Good's got bad, right is wrong, don't know which side I'm on. think it's quite as good as there are a couple of i think on the first side there are a couple of tracks that i don't love uh, one of them by the way that i've kind of come to like is hay fever which i just laugh at this is a song very it's again a kind of a, a kind of a fun throwback to the sort of light throwaway song ray would have written for the kinks in the in the late 60s it's literally just about how much he hates his allergies it's like <laughs> with this with the summer comes along and the pollen is in the air. I'm just sneezing my brains out and I hate it, which just makes me laugh so much because, boy, I can relate. I got hay fever locking up my head. Hay fever, I ought to be in bed. I got a dance when I can't hardly breathe. Wish I could cure this infernal allergy. I got hay fever locking up my brain. Goofy little, it could have been a something else song, right? I like that one. But the one I've never loved is, of course, the big hit single from the album, A Rock and Roll Fantasy, right? And I guess my criticism of it is always that the sort of self-mythologizing R&R songs always kind of great at me. Come Dancing is one that does similarly later on. I mean, I think Scott feels similarly in that respect. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
the thing that makes this album really stick for me is that it ends incredibly well. Um, uh, Out of the Wardrobe, I think, is probably one of the better songs on the record. And Get Up, I think, is, is, is a fantastic way of ending the record. That's all Ray's. But in between those two is the penultimate song. And it's called Trust Your Heart. And it's one of Dave's songs. He wrote it and he sings it. It's worth pointing out because one of the things I didn't really emphasize enough, we talked about how great Dave's songwriting was right at the beginning of the show in the late 60s and the early 70s. But basically, you know, I I don't know if it was Ray sort of becoming a little bit authoritarian and asserting himself with all these concepts in particular, but his writing voice disappeared from the band for a very long time. And it never was going to become one of those things where he always had like, you know, two or three great tracks. Here he has what I think might be his all-time greatest song. I really think Trust Your Heart is the best thing that Dave Davis ever wrote, and it is certainly the best thing that Dave Davis ever sang. him absolutely killing it vocally on that song and he remembered this is the guy who also sang nagging woman back on like kind of kinks in 1965 you'll be awestruck at how a person could actually grow just by having to get out there on the road every day and do it and fake it until you make it he's really found power in his voice i love that song i really love the ending of misfits but that's what i wanted to say about it before you guys threw in your two cents Oh, so I totally agree, Jeff. Totally agree. I, I have to say, I, I have to, uh, we talked about um, a little bit ago when we were talking about um, Muswell Hillbillies and we were talking about skin and bone and alcohol. Um, and I think a, acute schizophrenia, paranoia blues. It's sort of like somebody's upset and goes to the doctor or whatever. And, and, and for my money, that is why I love permanent waves so much. Mm. I, I love this song. I think it is so funny. So Ray's not feeling good. Um, he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, there's nothing wrong with you. What you need is a change, have a shave, find a chick. Your body functions, but your hair is a disgrace. So what he really needs to do is get a perm, <laughs> which is just such a Ray kind of line and, and Ray's, I don't know, maybe you can kind of, you wonder about this, especially with like hay fever, you know, maybe a little hypochondria. Um, and so, you know, the doctor's just like. But also drawing the wrong conclusion from the advice being given here. It's like it's it, it's not about the perm, my friend. It's about changing your lifestyle. Eat better. Right. Go get some exercise. Friend. Right. That's what you I love. Do. It. I saw my doctor. He said, "Man, you look sick." He said, "I think you better do something quick." 
That's a great song. Um, I I agree with you. Hey Fever is just a is a great song. It's really funny. This uh, another album to me that's a no skip. Um, I like rock and roll fantasy. The only thing I, I would add, I mean, I could I could sing this album's praises all day, but I I, I would be rem- I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention. Uh, so this album comes out in the spring of '78. In around Christmas time, uh, they released Father Christmas which is for my money, like one of my all time favorite Christmas songs. Absolutely. And it's such a day. It's such a Ray, uh, you know, uh, father Christmas, give us some money. Don't mess around with those silly toys. We'll beat you up. If you don't hand it over, we want your bread. So don't make us annoyed. Give all the toys to the little rich boys. It's just such a great, uh, a great twist on Christmas songs. When you take these two albums together, I, I think that the you know we had talked about um, Ray sort of the the well had gone dry. Um, maybe maybe another way to think about it is is that while there's the vaudeville period had its charms, the muse was sort of leaving him. But when you look at these two records, he's funny, he's witty, he's not like self-loathing, he's not wallowing, and when he does, he's doing it with a wink. Um, that he's really his songwriting-wise, he's really back on his game. Scott? I'm the guy who's gonna defend I guess jaded a little bit, but rock and roll fantasy. I think rock and roll fantasy is a great, great song. I'll back up one step and say I think Misfits is not quite as good as Sleepwalker. J Love uh, and, and Jeff liked Hay Fever. That's a leftover from the from the Sleepwalker session. That's one they brought hmm. forward to uh to Misfits. Show. And I should mention too, you know, before Misfits comes out, the band almost breaks up. They nearly split apart. Andy Pyle quits, who plays bass. John Gosling quits, who played piano and organ for him. And, you know, there's probably a little question that has to come up about whether or not you even want to continue. Do you want to keep doing this? Do you want to keep playing rock and roll? Do you want to keep being the kinks? Do you want to keep being in a band? And part of that, I think, working through it is where rock and roll fantasy comes from, because 
It's first of all, it's better than the Bad Company song by the same name. Um, well, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but this is about this is the power of music and and how it can move from decade to decade and era to era. Um, and they decide, right? The king is dead. Elvis is dead. Rock is done. You might be through, but I've just begun. Right? So they're going to keep going. And, and early in this song, Rock and Roll Fantasy, they talk about a guy on the block who lives for rock. And then uh, I think it's two verses later, they get really specific. They name the fan, Dan. Dan. Yep. Dan is a fan who lives for our music. The highs and lows, he's had all the shows. And so you really personify this person out there who is all about the kinks, has every record, loved Muswell Hillbillies, but also loves Schoolboys in Disgrace. And he's at every show and he's throwing plates or the stuff yep. that Jay was talking about previously. And I love they get to the end of the, that, that verse. And how does it resolve? Ray says, you know, he talks about Dan, this fan, he's at every show. And he says, oh, but you and me keep thinking the world's just passing us by. Like what we're doing has no meaning whatsoever, that what we do is not high art, that what we do is not going to live forever. And everything else is, is, is all these other things are more important. But what we do in this band matters to Dan and the guy in the block from earlier in the song. And it's really important. And so we're going to continue. We're going to keep playing. We're going to keep being the kinks. And for that reason, I, I really connect rock and roll fantasy with the, the, the message of the album and the decision to keep being the kinks. That's why I think it's the most important song. And I think the best song on Misfits. Dan is a family I think it's worth mentioning too, right? That this this album comes out in May. Rock and roll fantasy comes. Rock and roll fantasy is comes out in May. You know, Elvis. When, when he says the king is dead, I mean Elvis had just died, so it, it probably hit a little harder. You know, in nineteen in the spring of nineteen seventy eight to say, you know, the king is dead, rock is done. You know, probably felt that way to a lot of people. To bring a tear to my eye. And in <laughs> fact, you, you, know, you know, I got to know. Actually, you're making me reconsider the song. I'm not even kidding about that. I'm going to have to go back now and listen to it with fresh ears. And by the way, Scott, since you're on a roll, do you think you know we're kind of running short on time? We've been going on bashing on for quite a while now. Do you want to sell us on the virtues of the Kinks' next album? But but can can you do it on a budget? <laughs> <laughs>
I just picked up this record on vinyl over uh, Christmas break. So now I have it in my in my collection. I didn't have it on on, on LP. I guys, I love low budget. I I know I know every critique about it. I know it's too big and it's too loud and it's too dumb, and it's meant to be played in arenas. And there's a there's a disco vibe. And Clive Davis said you got to give me a club song. And I know all of that stuff. I think low budget is a fabulous, fantastic record. It's built for arenas. It's built for America. And I'm somewhat mystified why it hasn't lived a little louder, no pun intended, in our memories because of the lyrical content. This is 1979, and Ray, for all his lyrics about the UK and their struggles, and certainly the UK was dealing with, and Britain was dealing with some of the same things, but this record is the soundtrack of the Carter malaise. This record is the soundtrack of recession and an oil crisis and America's diminished standing in the world. And Ray, the song called "A Gallon of Gas" on right. this album. That's what you and need it's to know. about yeah. buying a Cadillac, which was your lifelong dream, and now you can't afford to put gas in your Cadillac. And even if you could afford it, you can't find any because there's a gas shortage. There's um, a line. There's a, a there's a line, and and the beautiful thing about a gallon of gas is the pace is set to like you're in a gas line and just waiting and waiting and waiting for that line to move. But so much of this deals with what's what was happening in America and the world in '79. But it there it's very much America centric. There's a reference to the, the the Marvel hero Captain America and a reference to the DC hero Superman. Just a couple of songs apart here. Um, I know Jeff loves Superman, so I, I do too, but I, I, I'll leave it for him. I, I, I think Catch Me Now I'm Falling is such a fantastic song. This is Captain America calling the idea that the U.S. has always been there for everybody else. We bailed you out when you were on your knees. We helped you out when you were broke. Will you catch me now? I'm falling. We need help. Who's going to help the United States? Captain America is calling. And that riff is just ripped off, let's be honest, from Jumpin' Jack Flash. Jumpin' Jack Flash. I don't don't care. I don't care. It's still a fabulous, fabulous song. Uh, Low Budget, which kicks off side two, if I'm not mistaken. Great song. The slow sort of boogie blues. Love the backing vocals in the chorus. Cut price person in a low budget land. As Jay mentioned, Ray's sense of humor is back. That that verse where he's, he's buying shoes that don't fit, jeans that are too tight. He's a size thirty, a size twenty eight, but he, or he bought a size twenty eight, but he takes thirty four. But they were on sale, and so he's got to <laughs> buy them. Small shoes, tight pants, they were on sale. It's all I can afford. And um, I already mentioned gallon of gas, Superman. Oh, I got to talk a little about Superman. Clive Davis wanted this song. He wanted a club friendly record, and so Dave gives him one or Ray gives him one and it happens to be perhaps the best song on the record. If you can't get into Superman, I don't know what you're doing listening to music. Is it a little disco? It's more than a little disco. They wink at you in the process. Um I'm such a wreck, but I'm staying alive. That's I was about to see that's <laughs> absolutely that's absolutely intentional. Uh but I love the beat. I love the fact you marry this four on the floor beat with these huge, massive Dave riffs. And this idea in Superman about and, and Ray does this sometimes too. 
the, the fantasy versus the mundane. I mean, you go all the way back to uh, to soap opera. That's the idea of soap opera, right? That the, the find the most boring person possible and you switch places with them. In Superman, you have the mon, mon, mundane idea of everyday life. And I just wish I could escape. I wish I could be Superman. I wish I could fix these problems. Um, have I done a good enough job, Jeff? Have I sold people on low budget? This is a great album. I love low budget. I'm shopping at Woolworth and low discount stores. I'm dropping my standards so that I can buy more. Low budget show keeps me on my toes. I count every penny and I watch where it goes. I don't love low budget. <laughs> I, I haven't done a good enough job on you. <laughs> no, you haven't done. You failed. Miserable failure. Sorry, Scott. And I mean, I have to give you the honest review. No, here's the thing about low budget. I don't hate it at all. I mean, all the criticisms that are made of it, however, I, I grant them and I credit them. It is obviously a much more sort of a, an arena ready sound. You can sell, you can tell that it's thinner, right? And that's how you know there's a lot less acoustic music. And, and Catch Me Now and Falling is actually probably, I'd say, one I don't like that much. It, it really rather cynically does scream, I want to be a U.S. radio hit, doesn't it? It's got that sort of generic rock gate, doesn't sound like the Kings Act normally think of sounding and yeah as you pointed out totally rips off jumping jack flash captain america calling making it american themed it just tells you how much allegiances have shifted from village <laughs> greens in britain to like the american heartland it's such a play for u.s airplay and of course i think it's hilarious because it's you know on the same side of the record they have national health which is like a very British concept, yeah. the National Health, which I actually think is one of the most interesting songs on the album, just because of the arrangement. It's got that weird kind of bonking or plonking percussive sound in the right channel that goes on throughout the entire thing. But yeah, I will talk about Wish I Could Fly Like Superman. I don't give a crap whether it's disco. It's disco post-punk, actually, which is what makes it most remarkable. Sounds absolutely nothing like the old school kinks. Fair enough. But I don't care. It's of a piece with everything that was killing it on that new wave post-punk scene back in 1979. You could pair this with, like, you know, as you pointed out, the Bee Gees, but you could also pair it with Blondie's Heart of Glass. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes all the sense in the world equally, just the same. Time. 
love that song. But beyond that one song, I don't know what I mean. I, I like the title track. I, I, as you pointed out, it's kind of got an uninteresting blues rock riff, but that lyric is really funny. And I and I always do sometimes. My motto the phrase: "I'm a cut price person <laughs> in a low budget band or low budget land." I mean, it's it's a great great line. I guess the only one that I really love is the attitude, the one that opens it up. It's kind of a punky attack, but there is a solid melody hiding behind that new wavy production. Oh, uh, the I, only thing about it that on? sounds a little. Let me jump. Can I jump on Attitude very quickly? Yeah, sure. So Attitude, and again, I've loved this album so much, I've now analyzed it deeper than I ever thought I could. Attitude is Ray Davis telling Ronald Reagan how to win in 1980. Attitude is a, is the message to the U.S. that you're down on your luck. You got to change your attitude. You might have the illness, but you've got the cure. Right? Learn to be positive. It's your only chance. It's 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 Ray shaking some sense into someone who just won't get out of the mopiness that they found themselves in. And it's certainly I, look. There's not the intention, but it it can point the way to mourning in America. Right? What this was Ray could change 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 your attitude. Um, America can be great again. We can change this. We can do it. We're we're the United States. And I think, again, it's not a direct line, but man, change the attitude, change the president. Isn't it funny and just so fitting how Ray Davis, because of his essentially documentary sensibility as a writer, ended up becoming like a chronicler of late 70s Carter era malaise <laughs> in America? Yes. After being like what he was in Britain, chronicling like the British class scene and like all sorts of British stories, he just can't help himself. The man writes like that. He just has this eye and he observes and he puts it into his music like that. Jay, you have any thoughts on low budget? Well, for, I, I, I am much closer to Scott on this. I have huh? to say, I'm surprised neither of you mentioned it, but the song National Health is a song you about national it. I like it quite a bit. That's actually one no, of my no, 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 no. But the subject of national health is, is it's a song about masturbation is what it is. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, I just love it. I, that to me, that song sums up so much about why I love late seventies kinks. It's so cheeky and naughty and fun. And like, it hits you. Like I probably listened to that song a half dozen times over the course of however long before I was like, wait a minute, is he singing about what? Oh, he is. Oh, you know, um, it's just so fun. And I, I don't think that the album is as good as Sleepwalker. I don't think it's as good as Misfits, but I think it is a lot of fun. I love low budget. I love the call and response. I'm on a low budget. What did you say? I'm on a low budget. I thought you said that. I, <laughs> I just love that. I think it's so funny. 
I think Gallon of Gas is fantastic. Wish I Could Fly Like Superman is amazing. Um, I, this is another no skip one for me. Um, I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. I, I think and 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 I. And and as a fan of the of the band, as obviously I I am, um, you know this one hit number eleven for them in the U.S. And so it's like it's about fact, damn time they se- this is the yeah, biggest selling album. It's about damn time that they had a a hit record. You know, is it their best record? No, but you know what? Good for them. They earned they earned a number eleven. Damn it, that's sort of my attitude. I went to my local dealer to see. He said there's a little gas going, but you have to wait for the office of red hot speed and some really high grade I assume because, you know, Scott is a really big fan. He's probably going to set aside a special Patreon episode to discuss the live album, One for the Road from the Kings. I know he's, he's such you know, an aficionado of live work, but Jay, I don't know if you have any particular thoughts about this, this late period Kings live I, record. Or- I, I don't, I don't think the Kings live translates onto vinyl. I don't, I don't or, so. or it's not, they're not like the, you got to see them. It's kind of like the stones. Like you go see a stone show and it's like, Oh, this is amazing. And then, and then you listen to this, the show that you saw and you're like, wait, what was that? Like, <laughs> it's kind of the same way. I think it's not, they're not like the grateful dead where yeah, you, you have to, you know, like you gotta be there. Which is funny because like, you know, you think the dead would be the classic example if you had to be there, but no, they really aren't. But in this mm-hmm. case, I, I agree with you. So that brings me to like, it's the last album that I really have serious thoughts about in mm-hmm. the kinks sort of, you know, entire discography. It's not the last one of their career. But it's 1981's Give the People What They Want. And boy, that title to me has always just been, I will I admit it, it feels like it's a concession. This is my least, I mean, it, to me, the trajectory is clear. I didn't like low budget as much as I like Misfits. And I like this one even less than low budget. This is where the sound becomes far too, get, altogether far too 80s, early 80s sounding but also just non-kinksy. Like there are good songs here in in terms of the, the way they're written. Around the Dial is actually not a bad song at all, but it sounds like it's heavy metal kinks. It sounds yeah. like they're playing Sabbath or something like that, like like bad era, late 70s Sabbath, no less. And that's really not what I'm up for. I don't know what you guys think about Give the People What They Want, for, but for me, this is pretty much the end. Around the dial, around the dial, FMA, where are you? 
I think it's, Scott, I know you you like it. Yes, I think it's the last good Kinks album, which might not be going on too much of a ledge considering what comes next. But I think it's uneven. I grant you that. But I think the good outweighs the bad. And I think the good is good enough to, to elevate it. Jeff is totally right. This is a different sound even than low budget. This is a loud album. The drums are set to implode on the dial. I mean, everything is huge sounding and it starts on fire. It starts blazing fast. Everything is fast, fast, fast. Um, and, and in a way, maybe it's a slight reaction to, to, to like punk, but this is 1981. So you're even past that a little bit at this point. Long past. Right. And, point, yeah. but I do think, I think the highlights here are really great. Uh, the, the, the around the dial, Jeff already mentioned, I think give the people what they want is uh, the title track is an excellent song. And much like uh, Jay, enjoy that sort of back and forth on low budget with the backing vocals. You kind of have the same thing here with the crowd shouting, hey, 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 over the drum roll. It's got a wicked Dave riff. And the, the, the you know, lyrics about, you know, consumerism and, and, and well, giving the people what they want. And, and what Ray's found over the years, much like he did earlier on Look a Little on the Sunny Side, which I mentioned, is that you can't tell what the people want. The more they get, the more they need. They get harder and harder to please. Uh, who knows? But he says... Sex, perversion, rape, violence, uh, watching Oswald shooting Kennedy over and over and over again. And then he closes by saying, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to blow out your brains, do it right. Make sure it's in prime time on, on Saturday <laughs> night. Um, it is like a very, very cynical Ray giving you the lyrics on, on the title track. Destroyer is outstanding where they turn all day and all the night sideways. Wait. Do you think you like that song? I like I find Destroyer. that song to oh, be yeah. an insult. I, <laughs> that is like the weirdest, bizarrest, like a joke, right? It's all day and all the night. It's it's the same riff, yeah, but it's just repeated in this terrible hard rock form. I'm surprised you like no, it. I right? like it. I like uh, I like a little bit of abuse. Um, I like Dave's guitar there an awful lot. Uh, and then I have to take a few seconds to talk about what I think is the the last truly truly wonderful moment from Ray, which is better things. And I, yes. was, I was introduced to better things. See, it's weird. Je Jeff mentioned earlier how many other bands cover the kinks and do it well. And how many times have I said, Oh yeah, this other band played the song. And that's how, so um, the first time I heard better things, I'm almost certain the first time I heard better things was uh, fountains of Wayne covered better things like four days after nine 11 on Conan O'Brien on late night with Conan O'Brien. And Founds of Wayne is like the perfect band to cover a song like this 
from an artist like Ray because Fountains of Wayne, again, are very sunny on the outside and can be very sad on the inside, which is a lot of the way that Ray writes songs. Better Things is none of that, though. Better Things is pure optimism and and hope in the midst of all these things that are happening around you. It's a beautiful song. Here's wishing you the bluest sky and hoping better uh, some, something better comes tomorrow. Hoping all the verses rhyme and the very best of choruses too. It's melodically beautiful. It's not powerful. It's the one, although the drums still sound hot. I, if I could change one thing, it would be the drum sound of the song. Yeah. But it's not trying to overpower itself. Um, it, it's just a beautiful, pure form of optimism. It, it, it closes this very cynical album uh, with rage uh, repeating again and again. I hope tomorrow you'll find better things. I hope tomorrow you'll find better things. The past is gone. It's all been said. Here's to what the future brings. I love this tiny bit of Ray letting his guard down on what is, again, a, a very cynical record, a very loud record, a very give the people what they want kind of record. This is the one song I think Ray takes for himself and it shows, and I love it. So I, I'm definitely closer to to Jeff than you on this album, Scott. This is this is where I start I start skipping songs again. But I, I will say I'm glad you mentioned Better Things because I think that is just an, a, a, a fantastic song. I had a thought for you guys on Destroyer. Uh, I can definitely appreciate Jeff why you don't like this song. It is completely derivative of their past work, right? Um, it's got yeah, that's the point, but like, yeah, it, 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 it's 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 you know what? It's sort of like the soft reboot of Star Wars that J.J. Abrams did, right? Like, l- let's just bring <laughs> this back is the Force Awakens, oh, right? This songs. is right, <laughs> and it's not just in the music, but like he meets a girl called Lola, and he's right. paranoid. This is all stuff that he has been talking about forever, well, and he's just reworked it. Yeah. And so here's the thing. I think it's a sign that once again, he's running, running out, running out of gas, right? That you have to put something in here. That's just a basic, like, Hey, you know, like what the South Park guys called it, the member berries, right? Um, Hey, remember that, you know, it's sort of <laughs> like that and put it in the, put it in this album in the middle of the album. Um, but Answers. like Scott, like right. Scott, though, see, this is the thing. I'm such a homer for this band that I'm right there for it. I love this song. Like, I know I shouldn't like this song. I know I should expect better from them. But you know what? Whenever oh, I have that song in my my huge kinks um, playlist, and whenever it comes up, I'm like, oh, nice. I'm always happy. <laughs> Said man, there's 
the same way with give the people what they want because you know you listen to that and it's like wait a minute i kind of think he's insulting me a little bit right you know like i'm <laughs> i'm the audience here i'm i'm the roman I, I, i'm i'm the romans cheering the christians being thrown to the lions in in rays imagine and i'm like ah screw it yeah yeah you, you know like i just can't help myself <laughs> but I, I i do think that that it is a sign that that the muse which had returned to him is now is moving on and probably good indication of this. I want to mention this last time, but have you guys ever noticed that the album cover of State of the Confu- State of Confusion is basically it's the exact same cover as Give the People What They Want? It's the same damn cover. <laughs> it's well, the it is, same. Okay, uh, okay, so okay, listen. Now, first of all, I'm going to point out two things. One, before we move on from Give the People What They Want, I'm surprised that nobody mentioned one of the songs I think is actually the best on the album, which is Killer's Eyes. Um, but having said that, I was going to make the joke that I was going to make earlier, which is that, yes, the difference between the covers forgive the people what they want and state of confusion is now they all know they're running away from a bomb. OK, <laughs> literally, literally the album title, they look like they're running away from it, like it's about to explode, which is my opinion of this. They're biggest one of their biggest selling albums here's a fun fact does anybody know what the highest charting king single of all time was yes uh it's a it's a tie actually it was tired of waiting for you back in 1965 an all-time classic yeah. and then it ties with come dancing both come number, dancing six. Both number six i think if i'm not mistaken yeah, number six, number six. Number six with a soft bullet, I suppose, not a number <laughs> one with a bullet. Uh, but yeah, 1983 State of Confusion. This is an album that I have very little good to say about, mm-hmm. even though uh, it has, you know, Come Dancing, which is, of course, a, a song that many people like. And I know Scott loves. So I guess I guess I think he's the one who's got to start. Can you tell us why you've always loved Come Dancing so much? You're sentimental for its themes. No, I'm not. I think it's it's really I really don't like Come Dancing. And I know people do. And it's played all the time. And it reached number six. And it's a very sweet story about how Ray wishes for the old days and his sister is to be his sister passed away and all this. And I'm sympathetic to the to the lyrics. I'm sympathetic. But I hate that. I hate. Uh, I hate that song. I if I hear "Come Dancing" start, I'm flipping the dial. I'm 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 the anti uh, Jay. Where Jay says no skips, I'm moving somewhere else. I'm wow. getting away from "Come Dancing." I really don't like that song at all, and I don't have much to say uh, about "State of Confusion." I think, as Jeff said, it's 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 bad. They put a parking lot on a piece of land where the supermarket used to stand. Before that they put up a bowling alley On the site that used to be the local pally That's where the big bands used to come and play My sister went there on a Saturday Come dancing All our boyfriends used to come and go Why not come dancing It's only natural Production conquers <laughs> in a horrible way this music. It, it, it makes it to me unlistenable, but it isn't just the production. I think Ray's compositions are just obviously slipping. Far too much of this is completely disposable. Come Dancing is interesting. State of Confusion, the title track, sort of interesting. 
that's about it. I don't really like anything else here, and I have even less to say about the remainder of these records, which I suppose is inevitable, but I don't want to step on anything J-May have to say. Maybe he's a really big fan of word of mouth. I don't know. I I am not. I'm not a fan of word of mouth. I'm not a fan of state of confusion. I, I will say I, I do oh, I like visual, however. That's a peak. <laughs> yeah, that's a different. I, I will say that I on this album, I like come dancing. Um, I've always just found it charming. Um, but you know, I'm a sucker. Like, look, I defended soap opera, so I'm not my opinions, you gotta understand, you know, you know where I'm coming from. I like uh I like State of Confusion, okay. I like Heart of Gold a lot. Um, and then the last song, Burn It Dead. I love that song just as a straight head rocker. There's nothing all that spectacular to it, but it's just Dave singing that song. I love that song. I think it's a great song. But overall, um, you know. Glad they got in the top 10 in the singles charts. That's awesome. They're a fantastic band. But yeah, that's about it. Let me then be the person to say uh, two nice things about Word of Mouth, which is the last Kinks album I pay any attention to whatsoever. I think Word of Mouth gives us the opportunity to appreciate both Ray and Dave one last time. I think they both have one shining moment on, on Word of Mouth that is not as good as their past work, but at least one more time to say, look, I could I could do this. I could do this. Dave's got a great track called Living on a Thin Line. Uh, that one is worth checking out. And then Ray's last best moment is on the first track of the album, which is Do It Again, which is what this uh, second uh, go around at the Kinks uh, episode is titled. The Kinks Do It Again. I'm a huge fan of Do It Again. I don't think it's one of his best ever, but it's about as good as he could possibly produce at this point in the career in 1984 or five, whatever it was. I love the guitar so much on Do It Again. I love the tone. I love the the moves so much that if I ever do learn how to play guitar, maybe one day, it will be to play this song. I mean, of all the songs you could play, I want to learn how to play the guitar part to Do It Again. I love it so much. And, you know, lyrically, it is this idea that, you know, back where we started, here we go round again got to do it again do it again the video's neat there's some visual callbacks to old kinks album covers and it's just ray and and mick avery actually in uh, uh in the video which is a fun watch uh, i think living on a thin line is dave's last gr- very good moment i want to say great probably and i think do it again is ray's last very good moment in the kinks the days go by and you wish you were
I, yeah, I'd agree with both. I'd, I'd agree with both of those. I couldn't agree more as well. And then this is the point where I'm not going to lie. I, I run out of things to say about the remaining Kinks albums. I mean, I don't know if there are people out there who've been listening through these two episodes who are waiting all of this time for my opinion on UK Jive or, or, or uh, Phobia. But if you have, I, I'm going to have to disappoint you. <laughs> I've listened to them. Well, once, Jeff, you know what maybe. that means? That means someday in the, mean? six years from now, when we do the Kinks Do It Again Again, we have to spend okay. more time on this particular portion, skin and bone. We'll, we'll make it a three-parter, and we'll really, we'll really <laughs> dive into the To the Bone live album, which I have. I, by the way, had that. I got that in high school when I was first getting into the Kinks. It was like the only current thing with their name on it that was available, and it's this interesting live acoustic album. It's literally the last album of the of the Kinks' career. So this actually takes us all the way to like 1994 or something like that. I don't really think I'm doing them any disservice by skipping these last few records. No, for the record, are like a Think Visual. There's nothing on it even slightly memorable. There's UK Jive has one song on it. I've kind of like called down all the days but there's nothing much there phobia nothing that's 93 and of course dave and ray perpetually feuding as you can tell by like dave's somewhat lack of presence on a lot of these records At this point aren't even talking to one another the band just as Britpop is of course finding and rediscovering the kinks again breaks up in like 95 or something like that and that's been it for the kinks ever since they've never gotten back together and i don't think they ever will which is funny. yeah, they've certainly talked about it. Like, there's always something in the news and in, in the in, you know in the in the British press. Oh, maybe we'll get back together. But I mean, they're both in their late seventies now. I, I think that the game's over. Yeah, and Dave had a pretty bad stroke. I think did. at one point, and and I mean, I think he actually this is when they actually somewhat reconciled because I think Dave moved in with Ray, you know, to yeah. recuperate. Which is you know, hey, when you get something like that happening to you, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, that'll really bring things, you know, you know, really, you know, bring things to a, a point of clarity. But yeah, so the Kinks broke up and, and they haven't gotten back together. I don't think I'm doing anyone a disservice by not really spending time on these last few albums. Unless anybody else disagrees, however, in which point, in which case, speak now or forever hold your peace. Jay, you have any really powerful thoughts you want to share with us about Phobia? No, not really. I mean, they signed to MCA um, after uh, Think Visual or Word of Mouth is their last one for for uh, for Arista. They signed to MCA, and and I think Think Visual, um, it, it, UK Jive, and Phobia are all it's it's over. I, and I, I point out too. I mean, it's sort of interesting when you think about what a, a songwriting machine Ray Davis was for so many years yeah. that he he doesn't release any solo records until like 2006 or something like that. Um, I mean, he just kind of, yeah, it was 2006 with other people's lives, which I think was after his, his he was attacked in, in New Orleans. Um, and so I, 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 I think he's just done. I think he's just out of gas which is really kind of surprising for what a prolific songwriter he was um, that he would just, he just would hang up his spurs, but he really did. And he has not been that prolific since then. I mean, he's, he's done in since 2006, he's done four albums. I mean, they're, they're okay. They're, you know, they're, they're not, they're not anything like they used to be, uh, but they're better than the, I, I would say they're better than anything they did in the mid to late eighties. 
or 90s. But you, you can just kind of tell at the end of the day, the the band really ultimately there's so many great aspects to this band, but they rise and fall really on the strength of Ray Davis's ability to write a lyric. And mm-hmm. I, and I, it's just gone yep. at this point let me, in the story. He, he doesn't have anything interesting to say. Let me, let me make one point, And I think then we can roll into uh, the close of the episode. I, I, I texted this to Jay the other day and I almost forgot to mention it, but Jay talk, uh, talking about the strength being Ray's ability to write a lyric. Yes. I, I, almost more so than anything that I realized going back through the kinks again, this second time for the show is really the lyrical genius of Ray. When you look through the themes that he's able to bring back through the albums, uh, these are these are little these songs read like little novels and they all talk they all talk to each other in these little ways uh one song will make a point and it'll be reinforced on the next album or it'll be developed on the on the, on the record after that he just seems to be having this really interesting continuing conversation with himself like the philosophy of ray davis and working it out mm-hmm. as he goes album by album song by song and i found that this particular time absolutely fascinating to watch unfold over the years and that is it the kinks do it again part two here on political beats and we reach the part of the show where we all give you two albums you must own five songs you should hear from this uh, lengthy part two era of the kinks our guest is first jay cost gerald r ford senior non-residential fellow at aei jay two albums and five songs from this era of the kinks Okay, so two albums. I would say album number one is Muswell Hillbillies. Album number two, and you know I, I have to do this. Album number two is Soap Opera. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't resist. I, I I can't I have to give a shout out to this album because I, I love it so much. All right, so Kidding aside. So uh five songs. Okay, so let's think about this. Uh 20th Century Man. Uh, I'm going to go with 20th Century Man. I'm going to go with Lola. I am going to go with Preservation, the non-album single. I'm going to go with Sleepwalker. And I am going to go with Bernadette, just as a complete out of left field. All right. My two albums from this era of the Kinks is Lola And after the forceful defense earlier in the program, of course, it's going to be low budget. Uh, So Lola and low budget are my two records. Uh, Songs, man, there are so many, so many to choose from. Uh, Victoria from Arthur, I think, is an outstanding Kinks song. And again, one of my entry points into this era of the band's career. From Lola, the closing track, Power Man, what a riff, what a rock and roll song. I also am going to include Sleepwalker. Um, it's, I think it's an important song for the band in that transition away from the camp and the vaudeville into, into rock. They really nailed it and brought back that late 60s marriage that they had in their songwriting in 67, 68 or so. That's an important one. I will pick one from low budget. I'm going to say, I know Jeff didn't love it. I think Catch Me Now I'm Falling. I really like Catch Me Now I'm Falling. And then my final song is from uh, Give the People What They Want. I think it's Ray's last marvelous, wonderful, 
moment as he writes and lets his guard down just briefly on that album to give us the closer better things you really need to hear better things jeff all right so again we have so much ground to cover on this i'm looking for something that has maximum spread so i'm going to pick two albums and my five songs will come from everything but those two albums so the albums first one is lola i just think it's one of the king's finest records i think almost everything on it is great and i think the thing you can say about both of these records is, is that i wouldn't skip a single song on either of them so Lolo's the first one, and the second one is Sleepwalker from the King sort of revival in the late 70s. I just think this is a magnificent album, and in a lot of ways, it's the real discovery of this entire show for me. I really didn't give it the time of day that it deserved back when we did this show the first time. As for the five songs, I think I'll start with one from uh, Arthur, and I think it would be the title track, which has always been my favorite song on that record. I think summarizes what's great about it when it works the most. For most of the hillbillies, I'm going to have to go with Oklahoma, USA. I think it's a beautiful ballad. Uh, from the entire mess of the whole preservation era, <laughs> I'll stick. With, I'll stick with He's Evil, which I think is a really great song. And then from uh, Schoolboys in Disgrace, I'll say No More Looking Back somehow manages to find its way hiding on their least distinguished album as one of their best songs. And then Misfits on 1978's Misfits. I'll go with Trust Your Heart, which I think is Dave Davis's best song of all time. Certainly one of his best performances. Unless, of course, it's what we're talking about with number six, the my host prerogative bonus pick, which is a B-side from 1969 called Mindless Child of Motherhood, which for a very long time is the Dave Davis song I've been most fascinated with and one of the lost moments in the Kinks discography that I think people need to hear the most. The band at, at its absolute most ferocious and Dave singing his most anguished lyric about something taken directly from his life. This is an aspect of the Kinks that you may not even have heard prior to this show and I'm really, really glad that you're going to get to hear it now. Political Beats look at the Kinks, part two. Do it again. We thank Jay Cost for returning to do it again. Gerald R. Ford, senior non-residential fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He did it twice, people, so you might as well check out a book. James Madison, America's First Politician, or the new one, Democracy or Republic. You can find him on Twitter, X, at J underscore underscore cost jay thank you so much for doing doing it again with us and covering the kinks oh thanks for having me back guys it was a blast 
Uh, Jeff, we have uh, we have accomplished a first, which is redoing an episode, and now we have a, Maybe uh, a, a whole. It could be a last. We have a whole a year of 2024, and a couple ideas that were spurred by our exclusive content episode. If you are Patreon people, you know what we're talking about. If not, you just have to wait to see what the next few episodes might bring. Excitement coming down the line. Jeff is on X at Esoteric CD. I'm there at Scott Bertram. Remember, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash political beats. Entry level, mid-level, and upper level, all available there at patreon.com slash political beats. Subscribe for those new episodes, Apple Podcasts, tune in or go right to nationalreview.com. Find us on Facebook. We're on X at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.